Yeah, I Okay. <laughs> we will get started. <laughs> if I can convince Seraphina to stop singing Patty the Girl. But uh, good morning to everybody. And um, as usual, we have a lot on, on the table today. We want to um, report give a full report back on where we are in the preparation and planning for the 10th anniversary. Uh, and it's uh, it's right before us. I mean, it won't be long, about three weeks. So every, every day counts very much. Uh, and then we want to continue uh, the discussion of Noam Chomsky but the, uh, the ideological and political uh, foundations for Chomsky and, um, you know, kind of connecting it to Gerald Horn and the 1619 Project and um, Jerry and uh, uh, Jerry will talk a little bit about that in Nuri, I hope to. Uh, so uh, let, let, let me just start <clears throat> the 10th anniversary. Uh, we've come quite a way. The basic planning is uh, in place. Uh, this is one of the most politically and ideologically difficult uh, undertakings that the free school has done, I think, in its entire existence. Uh, definitely, it is far more complicated and complex and ambitious uh, than the fifth anniversary, which was kind of saying we've been around for five years, we've done things, and kind of thought about certain things, certain concepts such as uh, inner civilizational unity, mm -hmm. uh, dialectics through triads, uh, mm -hmm. and concept of a white supremacist social system. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, a lot of that theorizing we haven't uh, returned to uh, in, in any, well, some ways we return inter civilizational unity. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked much about dialectics through triads, which you know, was a, a kind of a, a teasing out of Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, but this is far more ambitious and far more politically and ideologically uh, difficult. Um, the reason being that we're in a crisis, the magnitude and likes of which this nation has, uh, has never seen. This is a singular moment in the history of this country and because of the 
position of this nation in the world. This crisis has implications for the future of humanity. And um, as most of you all are aware, what goes for the left is in chaos and retreat. Uh, we'll talk about that more. And some of it is in the um, in the call. Maybe we'll read the updated version of it as as we go forward. You know, but um, much of the left is in retreat. Uh, it is almost as though they cannot imagine a world where the United States is not hegemonic. So it turns out now when you think about it, that what goes for the left was never that much about fundamental change in the ways that we think about Lenin and the Russian Revolution now and those people. They were not about that. They were like a loyal opposition to the existing ruling class. So, so all of this time, I mean, if we thought that maybe we, we just have different opinions about uh, ideas or theories, it turns out that we fundamentally differ about the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, in some ways, this is astounding and it's a serious blow uh, to think, I guess it's a serious blow, I'm not exaggerate. But just to think that all these people were saying one thing out of one side of their mouths, but in actuality believed a whole set of other things. They believe that, quote, American democracy was democracy. They cannot accept this unraveling, this systemic crisis, this fact that the American people can no longer live under the conditions of, of capitalism as it now is. So we'll, we'll come back to um, Noam Chomsky and others, you know, but in the face of this, and it is an existential crisis of a system with all of the dangers uh, that uh, go with that. And there are dangers, you know, this is not tiptoeing through the tulips or, you know, uh, something like this. This is a very, very serious matter. And the fact that we in the free school have taken this on with the seriousness that, and the courage actually that it deserves, that we are not trying to look the other way. We're not trying to be popular among people who have at best a very temporary a relationship to uh, the questions that we're dealing with. In other words, uh, what I'm trying to say is um, uh, these are, are how, 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 how do I put it in my 
language, getting my words together. Um, it's what they call fair weather soldiers. You know, we can fight with soldiers as long as everything is going our way. But as soon as it gets difficult, uh, you know, we're no longer fighters. Uh, and so, so we've taken this on. Of course, there's so many headwinds that we're facing. And uh, again, I just want to emphasize, this is a profoundly difficult task politically. I, I don't, I think we've, we're capable of it. And already, I think as we, as we talk about the planning, we, we go through the call one more time, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, that we are seriously uh, uh, taking on these tasks. Now, just a couple of things. I want to say something about the call, just in general. Um, <clears throat> this is a little slow this morning. Um, the call proposes a path to, ch to revolutionary change of the society. But it defines revolutionary change not in narrow leftist ways, but in this broad sense of the way that it was talked about in what we call the Third American Revolution. And um, we have um, uh, put forward a vision if you know, of what a fourth American revolution should look like, of what the democratic struggle is at this time in the United States. And that's the key thing. And I think that argument is can, if, if properly, articulated can convince many, many people of this vision. The other thing is it addresses the seriousness of the crisis. And, you know, at one point we talk about a dark, a dark and tragic landscape. And it is that for the people. It is that and such. Um, the other thing is the emphasis upon children and youth. Um, you know, and, and, and it talks about and points out uh, as bad as it is for the population in general, it is even worse for children and youth and teenagers and, you know, drug addictions and other things. Mm -hmm. And I guess the final thing, and this is so anti-left, so anti-Chomsky, Horn, and all these people, uh, we talk about love as a political act of solidarity between people. And we use Martin Luther King's phrase, love is the sword that heals. And other things, we say other things there. But uh, that, that's something, you know, so it, it's spiritually and politically very different from what the left or the ways that the left talks. 
uh, it is not driven by anger or grievance, you know, everybody has a grievance and so on, but it's driven by an attempt to equip people with language and a vision that they can believe in and fight for. So I'll just stop there. Um, Michelle and Serafina and Emily uh, can, you know, talk about some of the details that we're that we've gotten finished. Maybe Emily, if you want to say, you know, how we set up the structure of it and so on. Yeah, um, I think we talked about the program um, in detail last week, but I did want to just give updates on our partners um, because, like Doc was saying, the free school takes seriously not just the vision that we're trying to articulate and that we have confidence in both broadening the struggle for democracy and like real democracy, but also the way that if it can be articulated correctly, mm -hmm. it does address and touch on and like can be um, convincing for many different kinds of people. But the free school, I feel like in some ways we want to partner with many different institutions and organizations and leaders in the city. Um, who are not just internet leftists, but are like actually representing like insti ongoing institutions of people, like churches and mosques and political leaders and people trying to make change in the city. Um, and in some ways, when we have these conversations with the different partners, what we're doing is we're talking about the free school after 10 years, like we believe there's a future and like not capitulating to just what is being said in the mainstream, but actually with a certain sociological lens, with a love for the people, with a belief that the people are um, the history makers and the changers, and that in this specific moment when the crisis is so bad, there's a unique opportunity um, and responsibility for us with the people to like actually push America into a fourth American revolution and complete an unfinished task that King and the civil rights movement understood. Um, I feel like when we talk to partners, that's what we're saying. And I think it's been really positive and moving to see different partners agree with our political statement saying like, yes, in this time, we have to say there is a sky, especially for the children and youth, that it's not enough to just go with the status quo. That's not enough to just go with the like flow, but we have to actually do something like it's time together to like clarify what is like, what's the vision? What are the root causes? What can be done? And um, I just wanted to say that we've been, so we've been approaching different institutions um, and what's been exciting is both former council member, Jenny Blackwell, um, who with her late husband, Lucian Blackwell, they've done a lot for the city. And Jenny Blackwell has agreed to be an official partner for the 10th anniversary of the Society Free School, which is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and also council member Helen Gim has agreed to also sign on as a partner. Um, and we're talking to institutions still, but that's the main update for the 10th anniversary. And I don't know if there's more you want me to say. My apologies. Who was the second person you named? You said Jamie Blackwell, and then there was another council member? Helen Gim. Helen Gim. Helen Gim? Yeah, J-Y-N. J-Y-N? G-Y-N. Helen Gim. Yeah. So, so we need to just say. 
distraction. So okay, yeah, be distraction. Um, so I think similar to what we talked about last week, it's the last two weekends of September. So September 23rd, 24th, 25th, which is Friday through Sunday. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe Sarah Phoenix we'll talk with African leaders. Um, but briefly, like, briefly, I'll just go over the different days again, and then Sarah Phoenix can go more deeply into the African leaders today, which is what we're really working out and which is becoming really important. But September 23rd to 25th will be the first weekend of the 10th anniversary. Um, Friday, the Friday evening program, we'll talk about introduction to free school, but us, like, unequivocally saying we we know we believe there's a sky and we are committed to um we are committed to struggling for the path to unity for the emergence of new american people um and then it'll lead into a documentary screening of king in the wilderness which will help talk about what do we mean by sky mm -hmm. um king as an important person as both his ideas his life the struggles of him in the civil rights movement what that that is the third American revolution. Um, and then Saturday, the 24th, we'll focus on pedagogy for the moral, spiritual, and political education of youth and children um, with the screening of James Baldwin's Price of the Ticket. Um, and then Sunday will be at the Asian Arts Initiative where we'll focus on specifically um, African communists and revolutionaries and their world historic significance um, and their formulation. I'm just gonna do the second weekend then yeah, we can no, talk about. And then the sec the last weekend of the 10th anniversary is September 30th. I think it is 30th and October 1st. Um, so Friday for the second half of the day, that's when we're going to talk about a scientific synthesis. Du Bois, London, Henry Winston will further discuss what we mean by the emergence of a new American people, the fourth American revolution. Um, and then Saturday will be the closing day where we'll have a concert, we'll do tributes to people like Jamie Blackwell, um, Munchie, Glenn Ford, Kuji, mm -hmm. and pay tribute to them in an official capacity about their significance um, and their enduring legacy in the ideological development of free school. Um, and then it'll end with a concert, like a really like triumphant concert. Mm -hmm. and, and performances. Could you just say um, Saturday this thing of uh, pedagogies for the moral, spiritual, mm -hmm. political education yeah. of children and youth? Because that, that's a whole day and it'll have sub panels and maybe you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this will definitely be one of the highlights because, well, what well, you might yeah. say. Yeah, the um, day will be having, it will start out with a general panel uh, called like the philosophical and ideological proposal for pedagogy. We're going to have different people like uh, on it. And then following that, it will be a panel that we titled Dreams the Third, Societies Undermining of the Revolutionary Consciousness Among Children and Youth. And we talk about how um, people's consciousness have been influenced by a ruling class and the dynamics of that. And then we would hope to also watch a Baldwin film that day um, to kind of overall frame it. But 
But isn't there, I mean, there are two other, I mean, there are three panels on that day. The general panel, then there's the one that brings the third, and then there's another one, isn't there? There's the Baldwin table. Yeah, the Baldwin table. Yeah. The Baldwin yeah. Baldwin yeah. 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 And, okay, and then the uh, the African leaders, that's, that's this is the first weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be at the Asian Arts Initiative. Yeah. And the whole, the, 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 this being necessary, we're talking about people that, I guess you've heard me mention their names a couple of times, like Marion and Gawabe, Seka Toure, uh, Emil Cargabral, Modiba Keita, uh, I think uh, Patrice Lumumba. Mm -hmm. And Cabral. And Cabral, yes. And these, um, because it's so often when people talk about the world revolutionary process, it's as though Africa never was a part of it, can never be a part of it. And what we wish to establish is not just the independence movement, but in that and a part of that where these revolutionary leaders like Patrice Lumumba, like Marion Nguabe and their theories and what this constituted in the struggle against neo-colonialism. Mm -hmm. uh, so this just, and these names and these figures we'll talk about, we'll talk about, of course, uh, how they, and how, you know, in fact, in Asia and Africa, they spoke in the same language, the same way. So we'll have a Chinese documentary on Mali and Modiba Keita. Mm -hmm. uh, there is also a Russian documentary. What is that? That's on, so, the, Congo. Yeah, on the Congo. On the Congo and Patrice Lumumba. Mm -hmm. No, Marion Nguabe. Oh, Marion Nguabe, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have a documentary film on Patrice Lumumba mm -hmm. that we want to show. And uh, what are we titling that panel that day? Okay, we'll give it a title, but I, you can see what the content is. And of course, filling out uh, the whole uh, architecture of the revolutionary process that was and must become again. Okay, so this will be very huge. And we're making, you know, you know how we make documentaries of things of the different people. Oh, oh we're showing, yeah. no, we're showing document. No, we're not going to, no. yeah. Well, well, well so okay. Nuri, Emil, and Caleb are actually oh, going to oh. make what is essentially a short documentary of these figures. Because the thing is, is that no, mm -hmm. no single documentary maker has ever made a good documentary of any of these figures. Because it doesn't actually capture the struggle of the people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, doesn't capture the ideas of these right. people. It doesn't talk about the language that was shared by mm -hmm. Asia, Africa, and then also was connected to Afro-America mm -hmm. and the world struggle for democracy. So it's a huge task for, by Emil and Nuri. Because I know um, um, Michelle has contacted a friend who can translate the Russian film on Marion and Guabe mm -hmm. and Somebody is going to do the translation of the Chinese film. Yeah, my parents already did. Oh, they did. Oh, yeah, they did. Okay. So we will have. I mean, they will. Are we going to? Yeah, it will be subtitled. 
Okay. Are we going to merge them all together? Yeah. Gonna, oh, okay. All right. Okay. So to be, and then the film, the documentary on Patrice Lumumba. No. Oh, we're not going to do that. Okay. We're going to take clips from it. Clips from it. Clips from it. Okay. The directors are so, like, they don't have it. That's they don't right. get it. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll take clips. So there will be these leaders, and this will be very, very important uh, as we look at a continent that has been pretty much neo-colonized. And this is the great tragedy. And what and that which held back the forward move of the African uh, revolutionary process. I just want to add that most of the people that we are highlighting were assassinated by Western imperialism. You cannot, I, I was telling them. You know, myself having lived through that, and every, you know, they killed him, uh, uh, Modiba Keita. Oh, he, you know, it's just, oh shit, another one taken down. And what replaced them were not revolutionaries like themselves, but uh, leaders faithful to the West. So that's that's what you know, but that we you know you'll see how we do that. I think it'll be a very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no. Uh, so and we have we done the second weekend? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you talked about uh, on Friday, that'll be it'll be two places oh Friday. yeah 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 no no one place now oh, was the place. library the library got i forgot it was yeah. set up anyway but it's split in half because in the morning we're gonna do the keynote lecture yeah. zach is gonna present on a scientific synthesis with the boys lennon henry winston and then we'll have the kind of the second yeah. Yeah. yeah and then we'll yeah. if you want to okay yeah, and then in the afternoon or the following afternoon slash evening, we'll talk about the struggle for the emergence of a new American people, the futuristic vision of Martin Luther King Jr. and James Baldwin. Um, yeah. yeah. And that day, that will all be at the Church of the Crucifixion, mm -hmm. which is such a wonderful space, as you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that, that's going to be a very important day. You know, the two things overlap. Mm -hmm. This idea, and and you you know we'll see it. Um, you know, our idea, and you know, the free school's been working on this forever. Mm -hmm. That to understand Du Bois is to understand his thinking and theories as part of a revolutionary rendering right, 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 right. of, you know, the American. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just want to say the process of this working out this day was really interesting because yeah. we knew there was a difference or we wanted to, at first it was like, we wanted to talk about the revolutionary process. We also wanted to talk about almost free schools proposal or idea that we've been having. Um, while studying so long and being grounded in so much of the boys. Yeah. Um, but then uh, I guess in more recent weeks with Mary's presentation on Baldwin helping to formulate the second half of the day of the new American people and as regards to King's movement and how that affected the 
country and the world. Um, I think that helped us like separate almost um, the two kind of like uh, theses, if you will, that we're saying that one, there is a certain uh, framework and uh, way of coming about a strategy um, for this moment being grounded in Du Bois. But then, um, and building on top of that in a way, there's like, there's all the study that we did of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. Um, but how the, that moment of Martin Luther King feeds into this time that we're in now. The, it's like we're almost drawing a certain line, a uh, certain conclusion um, because of our theoretical and philosophical and ideological foundations and then the concrete changes and um, further, further ideological developments of you know, King and James Baldwin. So I thought that was also an interesting take on the process of uh, the figuring out the 10th anniversary and I want to say that because I think that's something that free school has been um, offering to the people but also doing um, every time that we're meeting in a way. That's a good question. But, that's a good question. And I, I like you know this concept of the conference itself is an offering to the people. Mm -hmm. It is not just about us, but it is an offering. It is our thinking that we believe can help the people at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, and it is the opposite of the pessimism and negativism right. of so many people, especially oh, no. Especially as this has been imposed upon children and youth. Mm -hmm. This is what is so uh, heartbreaking, I would say. And just to add to that, like everything about this conference is basically for the people or for people, yes. human beings. Mm -hmm. This isn't mm -hmm. something where we'll kind of be talking at people or um, not trying to essentially touch the hearts of everybody. We're trying to um, touch everybody's hearts in the in this conference as that we do with multiple conferences. But I think uh, even in the way that we're setting up the different panel and discussion processes, it'll be like um, more of a conversational and more of a, yeah, that attitude is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. throughout the conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Can I, can I ask for the community? Oh, I'm sorry, I'd like to just welcome you. We have a new person here and I just met her today. She's from Baltimore. Could you say- I'm not, I'm not from Baltimore, I wouldn't say that. You're from Sierra Leone? I'm from New Jersey. From New Jersey. I'm oh. from the East Coast. Okay. I moved okay. around way too much. Okay. But oh, say your name again. I don't want to miss it. Gasso. 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 G-A-S-S-O-H. Gasso. So I'd like to welcome you here. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering, um, you all mentioned community partners, and I was just wanting to hear more about, about that and like how y'all um, envision, today's the third, how y'all envision community partners, organizations that are like ideologically affiliated with you, not only in practices, but in like how that manifests materially. What are y'all looking for from like community partners? Can we come back to that point? Most definitely. Yeah, okay, yeah. we'll come back to that. I, um, uh, there's something, wait a minute. Uh, 
something it was something that uh, was in my head something we had to fill in up Oh, God. Uh, I was just thinking about how the conferences would people. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I want to be first the Friday of the second weekend. Right. If everybody can get in their heads, this is two weekends. <laughs> so the first Friday <laughs> is this introduction to the free school. <laughs> And that I, I often say, and I think it is true, the message is the messengers. Yeah. That you all, the younger generation, will present the free school. Yeah. Very important. Mm -hmm. And in presenting the free school, you know, we will also uh, frame the free school now and going forward in the context of Martin Luther King and the last great campaign that he led. Mm -hmm. So as to say that, you know, you know, the title of the conference is Knowledge and Recapturing the Revolutionary Spirit for Our Time. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what revolutionary spirit? You know, we could go to Russia, we could go to China, we could go all over the planet, People's Republic of the Congo. But no, it is the revolutionary spirit of this country. And this will be very, very important that we, you know, and I guess we're working on it, but we have to get our, our heads fixed mm -hmm. on just, just what we're doing, that we're not talking pie in the sky. We are not talking a, a historical um, America. We're talking about three generations or two generations ago. A revolution was afoot in this country. It was not completed. But we see ourselves in the free school as part of the beginning of the completion of this, we call the fourth American revolution. This is gonna be a very important concept to put forward because again, when we get to Chomsky and, and Gerald Horn in the 1619 project, they're all saying that there was never a revolution. A country has been a counter-revolutionary country from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And that the American people do not have, and we, use this word in the call, the capacity, the moral or political capacity to do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. okay, you know, after they finish talking, it's time to put the gun to your, your head and commit suicide, you know, or get on fentanyl or dope. So, you know, I mean, if there is no hope, I mean, what the hell am I living? What is life about? Mm -hmm. And that, that's why I agree with what Serafina said. You know, we that's why the concept of love is so important in our call. And 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 again, not in this weak, you know, kissy kissy, you know, thing, but in this deep sense of human solidarity. Yeah. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry, sorry. I don't know. This is starting a conversation. I'm sorry to wake up now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just to add, we don't have to continue if you don't want to, but um, this 
another thing about this conference is that it seems to be almost like unlocking like the potential of the people and only in the fact of like these histories um and i think that was like a big right that's another thing to mention um the thing about the indian independence <coughs> conference you know uh was this question about history and why history is so important and i think that this conference is also kind of like a follow-up the same thing of why i'm so excited about africa is because mm -hmm. this is something that i would never have thought to have known um yeah. and also it isn't being taught at all the thing about king is not being taught and um these are histories to people in a country who need it in this country who are chinese who are african who are black and um same thing I mean, I don't know how much the Facebook live stream will go in the broad or uh, in the world, but the world would need this history as well. And how free school being anchored in the Black Radical tradition and the, uh, in Martin Luther King, the world can also hear that voice as well. And so that's why I think that this is important. Um, yeah, it'll be a very, it'll be really powerful. I, I think so. I think this is, and again, this is the most difficult thing the free school has ever done. When I say difficult, I don't mean the detailed work. And if there's a lot of detailed work, I just hope I'm not a good detailed person. <laughs> uh, I think Emily might be better than me. But it is not just, it's not the difficulty of the details of getting partners. And in fact, we're finding that partners <laughs> are easy to come by. Somehow people are feeling in this city that uh, this is something, this group, this project is something worth supporting, which to me is a very significant thing. And it does reflect all of the campaigns, the year of Du Bois, the year of Gandhi, all the things that we have done, which has involved most of these people at any rate, you know? Yeah, yeah they've been. So, uh, they are, it's like, you know, partners are like people who say, yes, we sign on with these people, you know. Um, oh, by the way, are we going to get a resolution in city council? Yeah, we could, totally yeah, we could try to do that. Yeah. Uh, and share more about that. Like, share the and for in what regard, like resolution? No, just a resolution uh, acknowledging the 10th anniversary of the free school. Where the city council mm -hmm. says, look, this is a group, whatever it says, yeah, you know. That's the thing about the free school that people don't usually know about, is that we have made an impact. Oh, and that we, we, um, <coughs> but yeah, the website is actually something, another project that we've been working on, which will follow with a documentary of some sort, um, which Michelle and Doc have been talking about. Um, well, that's that's another piece that we're putting together, interviewing, because a big part of this, and I don't know how much we'll complete of this, is archiving right. as much as we can about the ten the ten years, mm -hmm. and we've had we haven't devoted a lot of time to this because it's kind of we're thinking so much about the future and the current crisis that we just can't, oh, we did this, because there are about 50 events and conferences and campaigns and so. No, but that's another reason why we, in the anniversary, we didn't 
have this anniversary, like Emily said last week, about just, you know, what the free school has done or where we are. And we are presenting a certain vision. The, the reason for political education or ideological clarity is to be able to almost just to simply say the right thing for one, but to have a certain um, agenda, for lack of a better term, that um, people can connect to and find understandable. And so, yeah, it's not just simply like, because the thing about, I, the thing I'm trying to say is that maybe I'll just take it for instance for me, like my thinking has developed being a part of preschool. And so that is something that, like now I would say something different about the current moment than, than maybe four years ago. And mm -hmm. the same is true about preschool. So. Yeah, I think there's no, and, and that's why, you know, um, uh, Sophie and Michelle and myself met on Thursday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Wednesday. and we, we're going to be interviewing people in the free school about their coming, what brought them to the free school, why they stay in the free school, what it means to them. And we're going to try to, not everybody, but a, a sample, representative sample of people, and, and we'll try to whittle them down to about seven minutes and to present that in some form at some point in the conference, mm -hmm. the voices of the free school. Um, so that that's a, that's a, you want to say anything about that? Well, I, I think I would also add that it's, it's also a way for us to express the life world of preschool, preschool as a process um, in a different way. And I think it's an experiment as well for us to yeah. begin to interview ourselves. And it's also a way of us getting to understand preschool better for ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's, it's me, Sophie, and Doug to start, but if anyone also wants to be involved, you know, like it's, we can talk about it because mm -hmm. it's not it's not so bureaucratic. It's it's us testing mm -hmm. something new and wanting to start a different type of dialogue and seeing how it can be a part of yeah, like demonstrating the ideas that preschool is worked out in a different way, in a new way. Yeah, so that I guess will be on the website, but other things that we've been um working on for the website have been uh, like a music playlist. Oh yeah. Well um, let, let's let's start with the with the website I mean <laughs> which is we've been discussing and the logo as well. So I don't know you guys want to start because our first well we have the vision statement right okay we got the vision yeah we got that but I'm saying the website itself because <laughs> well the web I mean what it looks like because you know we we discussed that the first form formulation of it was Du Bois, King, and Baldwin pictures, right. mm -hmm. and so we felt that you know it was just too almost predictable, and so, yeah. and so we 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 said well look let's because Serafina had come up with a logo which is a hell of a logo with a brightness and some wonderful colors. Mm -hmm. And I asked uh, Emily, well, could we make a website that had the energy and the colors that Serafina? And then also connect preschool to like the historical 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think we do have to, we have something, don't we? You want to show it? I, mean, I don't know if we should show it right now. It's in the work in progress. Well, let's just look at the work in progress. Okay, you, well, if you, like Sar if you go to SaturdayFreeSchool10.com, it's the current website. I don't know how else to show it because my computer is live streaming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So someone else has their computer, we can use theirs. Um, but yeah, I think it's because I think, you know, Free School has been doing, has done so many conferences and events in the past. And we've used, a, we're used to highlighting movements and figures from like a certain, like, you know, from a certain tradition, a certain movement. But for the 10th anniversary, just like the vision statement, it's so new. Like, we're not just talking about the past. We're not just talking about history, one person who's important. What we're doing is we're synthesizing. You know, mm -hmm. we're saying like, oh yeah, sorry, the image is small and mobile, oh, but, oh, I think you're on the wrong yeah, website. Yeah. No, there's a website of the free school yeah. and there's a website, website for the 10th anniversary. Yeah, maybe can you pass it on your Um, But, it's so like for even the logo, the imagery, the vision statement, everything for the 10th anniversary is new because, and it's almost challenging. It's interesting because the process is challenging because we're not just trying to like make something to make it, but we're actually trying to capture a certain spirit, a certain ideal, like the ideological work we're doing. We're talking about, okay, like, what is our task? What is the future? Like, how would you define it? How do you celebrate struggle? How do we talk about our role in it? And so with the image, um, I tried to combine like the spirit of the free school, like not just our event, the way we bring people together around, like around knowing a certain history, but also like bringing the past and people and movements, we, like movements we celebrate and, children and youth but also like even free schoolers like the way we laugh together the way we like just talk and listen to music together um so i hope i i tried to capture it in the image but in terms of the website as a whole website um we're also trying to just build it out so that we can like include like have the archive on there we can also talk about the life of the free school and the things we do the way we meet but that's also why I'm kind of shy about the website because I'm like, oh, I have a lot to do, but I haven't done it yet. Well, we could we could see what people think. I mean, yeah, it made me think of the world student movement. Uh huh. Um, uh, world, the world students or the movement of students worldwide that the collides itself. So. Um, yeah, it's. Yeah. I haven't edited it though. Mm -hmm. Doc gave me some feedback about making sure I include like the white worker. Yeah, that, um, that's the thing we wanted. Oh, yes, to, please. My gosh, they need to know there. So, say that again. Yeah, I, let me just see. Now, that I, I like, I mean, we all say. Yeah, okay. All Yeah, no, I think this is working now. Anybody want to go say something? For that? Um, I mean, I guess I echo just being super new here. I, don't, I can't really contribute too much, but uh, I like how you brought up the white worker, you know, because that's um, especially thinking of 
MLK struggle near the end of his life, Absolutely. trying to rope in Absolutely. all working class rainbow Absolutely. coalition, reminding poor whites. That's right. You know, that's right. See this missing white. And that's see, and the, uh, let me just see something. I think I think the imagery is good. Okay. Okay. I would, in terms of the, I would. I know you, you know, make it a little smaller. Okay. And and the title of the conference, make it bolder and you know, knowledge so people know. And do they um, okay? Let's just go down to the, go to the top again. Okay. Um, I, I would just uh, a dip, maybe a bigger font, okay. and maybe go to the top again. So. Um, I would put above, I would put at the top, the 10th anniversary of the Saturday free school. I think now, and then knowledge, okay. you know, maybe, but just think about that. But make the title more prominent because I think there is a message in the title itself. You know what I'm saying? But I, 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 tr I believe that the graphics are good. I think it has, you know, every, I mean, so much of what we are, you know. Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, I, I think it works. And I, I think it, um, I think color and, and, and life is so important. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I maybe make it a little smaller, okay. but the title bigger. and 10th anniversary, bigger, more prominent. So you can't miss it. Because see, there's a way that you can get caught up in, in the pictures and forget about the title. So we don't want to lose the title. And, you know. Um, so you're telling me I did my job too well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and what, what I'm saying is, um, and somewhere you have to say, uh, don't don't make it so people have to go to these different places to find out. We have to say this is a conference conference on the, the week, the days, and you know make sure that people know that this is a conference celebrating the tenth anniversary. So all of that has to be prominent. Okay. And even I would say that information should be even more prominent than the, the graphics. Okay. So if you can, yeah, whatever, but don't let the graphics overwhelm the title, the date, and that this is a conference. Okay. And I think, now this is me, I think the vision statement should at least, if not the whole thing, at least, yeah. Now you might want to put, I don't know, well, we could talk about, but that part about love and yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and and that would also on the first page, but with a link to where the full thing is. Mm -hmm. But and that should be our vision. You something like that. We say and the, you know, something, something, something like that. What are the conference dates again? Just 23rd, yeah. I, just like to well, I don't know. How, I mean, how does that sound to y'all? I mean, this is just. 
My mind immediately went to what I what I imagined be like in the 15th year, you know, at our 15th anniversary. Oh, yeah. I just think that each five year mark is a very special landmark opportunity to really redevelop something new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you guys have mentioned in the conversation with the partners, I think what makes this conference special is also that so much of the ideas are directly devoted not to, like, to the symptoms, you know, to the, the present crisis in the way And I think it's always been that way for our conferences, but. It's just so so clear with the vision statement. Well, there's um some nice comments in the Facebook. Um, I think the link was shared, but uh, Nabila is saying the collage is beautiful, especially Cabral or Emilcar Cabral and Castro and the Korean drummers. Um, and Stephen Palmier says that it's articulating experience toward a change agency. Um, and then Danny had an earlier comment about the conference saying, this is an extremely important lesson. And I hope, and I worry that various leftists are trying to repress this period of change, becoming unwilling or perhaps willing defenders of the status quo. The phrase quote, the struggle continues becomes the way of hiding things. The key is to find the anxiety in the approach to politics. The left has uh, eternalized neoliberalism to being capitalism per se. And then he asked, is the event called to become a program? I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Danny. Danny, could you clarify that last part? Can you check this back? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Danny. Um, I stopped to, to talk to a friend of mine who's the E-man up here on Reed Avenue. And I've been stopping and giving him reports, things about the French school. And uh, I've talked. Um, he um, spoke to me. We were thinking about how the, the, the essential need, this need for us to to have a sense of urgency, mm -hmm. and and just what y'all doing here today. And we talked about this for the last two weeks about this sense of urgency, and not just from the free school, but uh, mediating this through the Islamic community, not just the nation of Islam, but the Islamic community. Mm -hmm. So about. I mean, I might need flyers so that I can give flyers out at these mass goods. Sometimes they don't have the, um, the same um, kind of community response. But but, but speaking with him about the, um, what's going on here, this sense of urgency about not just came this whole historical thing. And he, um, you know, he's speaking to the Islamic world from different people too, but this thing that's going on here, he said, this is an important thing. This is an important, this y'all sense of urgency that y'all bring in this. This is the real final part of this movement that is living, it's a living link here. Right. And, and, you, and you write about that there. You know, this is part of what we're trying to do. Make this conference both living and a part of the life of Philadelphia, at least. And this is this is the partners and bringing other people and getting leaflets and and you know 
all of the stuff, you know, the t-shirts that we're going to make and, and a lot of this will be the first t-shirts that we've had that have color. We usually do black and white for, for cost considerations, but this one will have color and uh, so yeah. Can we can we possibly now circle back to partners just so I can like no 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 let's not go to partners now hold hold on one minute. Oh my god. I'm sorry, I'm sorry dear. Okay, just, no uh, just on the um on the website and what do people think? Any do people remember the earlier iteration of it? Yes, it had Du Bois, King, and Baldwin. And our big question then was the picture of Baldwin, the best picture. And then we had even remember that like years ago. But and then and then we said, inspired by um, what Serafina, maybe something would show us uh, the uh, the logo for the conference. But inspired by that. I asked Emily, I said, look, could we kind of refashion this and bring color and life and energy? And I think you've, you've accomplished it with, you know, some revisions and stuff. But does everybody feel like, is that what? Yeah. Would you just say yes or yeah, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like I'm on an island here. Why are you here? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, that she's on the right track. I mean, yeah, I spent many hours on this collage. Yeah. I really believe in it. Nice. Like, I made it and I like felt a lot for it. I just think, to me, like it's also a single garment of destiny. Uh -huh. And <laughs> yeah, and I did forget about the white work. Yeah, yeah, we can get that in here. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Damn. There you go. Yeah. So, do you, do you yeah. want white evolutions? No. Could we look yeah. at um, at uh, Serafina's logo? Well, I had um. Even when we meet, okay, I don't also, know what they're talking about. Secret language. Okay, good. Now the logo. Um. I didn't get to edit it, but I had redrawn Well, you know, we've been having a just like with the website, how we present, we've been having a political discussion over the question of what would the logo for the conference look like. And um, you know, the children and youth question. 
and brightness and a sky and that's that's great. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh. See, if you if you all look at it, okay. yeah, that's really. Yeah. It's just a yeah. So, what were you yeah. saying about it? Um, this is something that Michelle, Kathy, I've been talking about. Um, yeah, we went through a couple of iterations, um, but I guess also it's not just like what or where or even how preschool has come to the conclusions that we've come to. But what is it that is in the heart and what we're trying to uh, con convey mm -hmm. with our message? Mm -hmm. And so that's why this image came up uh, almost on accident, <laughs> literally. So yeah. did you draw that? Yeah, that was a sketch. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's definitely beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Totally feel the no, time being led. No. And, and, you know, believe me, we have been discussing this. And, um, you know, there's always that uh, thing of a logo. Uh, and, you know, how corporations brand yeah. themselves with logos, yeah. the way even left organizations brand themselves with mm -hmm. logos. And they turn out to be more like commercial art, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, art designed. To, it's still commercial art, designed to sell yeah. things. Advertising. And, and she, and so what, you know, and so you all would put Serafina is an expressive artist, and and often it leans towards abstraction. Yeah. And I was, I said, well, look, Serafina, could we, because see the brightness, and, and it's very, it's, this is investment, you know, this concept of a sky, um, of a future, and the idea of who is the audience for the preschool. Now, it is children and youth more than, more than we know. At least that's who we want to be our primary audience children and I think that is one thing that has come out of the planning for this conference. Yeah. We kind of came to this early on if you remember yeah. the children and youth. <laughs> we sure did. Because it's funny when you think about it. I'm trying like, to figure I could oh this God, always happen. I'm trying to maybe I'm trying to figure out what y'all say. But go ahead. No. <laughs> it's over, please. Excuse me for interrupting. No, I'm sorry. Wait, 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 let us say something. No, because I was saying that this this whole thing will have a lot of emotions and a lot of feeling. That's what people I see, that's will cry. And I swear to God, it will be me. But I'm not saying that because it just means so much. 
And this can't be further emphasized by me. I feel like I say this every time that we talk about this um, planning because uh, you've already said it, the crisis, um, the, the place in which people are at today mm -hmm. is, is this is something that I do think and believe people really can understand and need. And, you know, they, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. See, that's why, hold on a minute. See, this is why, and again, I wanted to say, we wanted energy, we wanted color, we wanted hope, but not naive hope. But, you know, this idea of in struggle, and that's why, you know, Serafina, and it is, I mean, I, I really do like this form of it. You know, it's not, you know, commercial art, you know, like the Campbell soup can, <laughs> Andy Warhol. No, <laughs> uh, nor is it uh, abstraction that people can't understand. You know what I'm saying? And so you captured it. And the, and the, the color thing is very, very yeah. important. The way you use colors and yellow is so very important. Mm -hmm. And that is so. I think we got that. Mm -hmm. And I think it works. I think it works on leaflets. I think it works on T-shirts. I think it works. Uh, something has to come somewhere. How are we going to use it on the website? Uh, yeah, we can find. Yeah. So okay. Uh, okay. Now going forward. Now, first of all, everybody as an individual must commit herself and himself from now on to do everything they can to help build this. Talk to friends, talk to family, talk to masjids, talk to churches. And, you know, we, and everybody, you know, in the different reading groups should have lists of people that they're going to guarantee to get there. Because, let me say this, besides the, the fact that there is so much cynicism and so much skepticism out there, People say, well, you know, even the best intended people, well, you all, I, I agree with you all, but I, I just can't make it on that Saturday. You know, you know that every excuse not to. Mm -hmm. So we have to begin to encourage people. And encouraging people is politically convincing them. It is a political task, especially in this time where everything is said, no, nothing can happen. We just have to accept that we're going to go downhill into the gutter and, you know, and we can't do anything. You know what I'm saying? So to get people here is a political task. Now, people say, you know, and I always say, and often it's best to start with your family members. And because at certain points, your relationships in your family become political. Me and um, Emil were talking about this, you know, they are political relationships. And so you have to politically convince your family, just like you politically convince friends and associates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, from this day, now push forward and either have a list in your head or a written list of people that we'll guarantee will be there. 
by the way, and you know, even though we have this list of partners, the people I was assigned to call, I called, I ain't heard back from them. <laughs> you know, uh, and sometimes people say, well, oh, that's Tony again. What do you want me to do? You know, and I don't feel like doing nothing. It's Labor Day weekend, but <laughs> it's but it's part of the politics of this time. Uh, and we have to be clear because this two-day thing with all of these panels, we have to be very clear about what the program is. You know, uh, so we're going to have to get these leaflets out there very soon, where people can have it in their hands and the Facebook page and and so on, the tweeting and all, all of that type of thing. Who's in charge of our social media? Like, okay, it's in good hands, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I guess I've seen it. Any, anybody else? Sarah? Oh, go ahead. I said a few things. Just thing about organic growth and mm -hmm. um, I, you know, if I spend my youthful years and I'm still sitting here with all these youthful years, the thing that I witness really is not just using that word organic growth. I've been a person that used it towards me coming growing up. That's the idea of seeing it how it manifests. But in, in this particular need and urgency, it's, it's, the, um, it's the alliance of these world religious movements and also it's the alliance of this ethical background of people from different walks of life who have to me is um it's the harmonious part of the organic growth yeah. that that we can watch somebody come from zero one but to watch that organic but this is the phenomenon of this um reality in this movement that um we might shy away from how my feelings is about this but to see young people emerge, to emerge, to come upward with this. This is something else. That's right. And then, see, this is why Serafina is always talking about she's on the edge of crime. Yeah. You know this what I'm saying? Phenomenal. Because of that, well, what you say, it's of what you're saying, this world house yeah. that meets every Saturday here, come hell or high water. And this is, this, this is a message, you know, without, being self-centered that we have to celebrate. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it is a celebration of each and every one of us, but it is a celebration of a collectivity. Mm -hmm. This, and Derek, you are so right. Mm -hmm. We could easily walk away from each other. Wow. There's every reason, I mean, yeah, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, in an environment like this, why should I give a damn? You know, and I, and Derek, I'm you know I'm like you. I'm I'm more. They're more critical of their generation. I'm more critical of my generation. It's of the giving up, the throwing in the towel. Well, what was all that talk about back in the days, man? Oh, you were a fair weather soldier when everything was going nice, and you could say black power and talk shit. Oh, you you you're the greatest revolutionary of all time. But when it is at a time where there are headwinds saying cynically that you should not stand up for the free school to continue to stand. And that's, I don't know how we 
capture that. You know, hey, Michelle, in our interviews, we're going to have to try to elicit that and bring that out of the people we interview. You know, why did you stay with this? That's a question I like to answer, have answered. You know, why do you think this is, and, and it is a manifestation, I agree with you, of deep values that we share in common and how passing friendships have now developed into deep relationships of love and mutuality. None of us like knew each other all that well. And now it's like, like with sisters and brothers, like with family members. So this is, and so I guess, you know, what we'll have to try to convey, uh, even on the first day of the conference, yeah. is this spirit. And I can tell you, I'll just say this, you know, uh, Jerome Mohammed from the Nation of Islam, he said to me over the phone, we just, he said, look, Tony, this, he said, the preschool is God-inspired. He's a religious man. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, there is something that people see, the Church of the Overcomer, the Church of the Crucifixion, Mother Jessie and, and her husband, Dave, and, and these are testimonies that we see in everyday life. And we have to kind of exude that without being arrogant. You know what I'm saying? Maintain what I think is a, a, a hallmark of the Saturday fruits, a humility and a commit. So that, that's what I want, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, go, go ahead, Jerry. Well, uh, Danny clarified this question. He was asking, Will the event call become a political program? Not immediately, but you were talking oh, about- Oh, I know going future. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, and I think, hey, Danny, this is a very good question. Will the vision become a social, a program of social demands, of political demands? And that's a big, and I think about that quite a bit. Uh, here, I, I think I'm, I, I'm influenced by Derek's concept of organicness, or I use organicity. You know, uh, a vision, if properly imparted to the people, elicits its own program. You know, I don't need to tell people that we need public education or that we need good jobs, or that we need, and then, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. The people, are, and the vision statement pretty much says it. The people are in open rebellion against the system. So I, and, and Danny could give us feedback on, my predisposition is at a certain point, it is, well, how could I put it? Um, do we have to tell people what they need? No. Can we share a vision with them? Yes. Um, when we say we want peace and revolutionary democracy and people's democracy, people say, well, what does that look like? Well, 
The question is not that we will say, tell you what, but we can discuss what it looks like. Mm -hmm. That's why a partnering, the nation of Islam, the church of the overcomer, the church of the crucifixion, uh, wherever there are people to inspire energy and hope, that's what, I, I think that's what we're doing. Is there a, my, I have a lot of Sagittarius energy, so I'm like very direct. Uh, coming back, I know we've talked a lot, and again, you can shut me down again and say we're not going to talk about I don't mind. I'll, I'll just keep bringing it up. Uh, so you, you said the, the nation is because I'm part of the Poor People's Army. Oh, and you, oh, you would uh, Sherry Hunkel. No, no, no. Oh, Sherry Hunkel. No, no, no. His views on Ukraine. My God, he's an imperialist. Wow, this is very. He's important. an imperialist. Hey, hey, Dick, we're gonna come right back to that. This is. Very important Let's what you just said. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Like Sherry Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah. so that that's I'm like community liaison, like just try to build, like just see what everyone else is doing, tap in, you know, I have the capacity. Yes. So you said the nation of Islam, the church of the overcomer. Yes. The church of the crucifixion. Crucifixion. The a lot of churches, a lot of churches. Let's see, okay. that's where we're and then, And the saint, the saint, the saint, the crucifix. Crucifix, okay, thank you. Hopefully not the Bethel and the crucifix, okay. Crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion. Gandhi Global Family. Yeah, Church of the Crucifixion. Okay, I'm, I'll just spell this. Let's see, this, so I, I mean, just to Danny's point, oh, go for it. I'm just trying to get a list of all, because because I cause we have a community meeting or an organizing meeting on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, I've been, I've been going to a lot of community, like there's a, a group of folks who are trying to do um, actions for free Palestine. So I went there, you know, now I'm here and I'm like, okay, let me report back. You know, it's all community yeah. liaisons do. Yeah. So it's just like, I think for, for Sherry, it's like, we, we, I very deeply appreciate knowing who organizations are yeah. partnering with, oh, yeah. where you're getting your money well, from. Well, ask Sherry, yeah. just mention my name for and ask her if she'll partner with us. Tony Montero. Tony Montero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm related to the uh, the mafia and stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> the mafia? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're not partnering with the South <laughs> of the or the Junior Black Mafia for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going thug this year. But, oh, go ahead, Jared. Some more comments and questions. Uh, Virginia Cox says, good morning, Tony from Montero and the free school. Oh, uh, you continue to inspire and educate. And then she asks, what's the difference between organic and dialectical? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, can I say something to Virginia? First of all, Virginia, how you doing? I didn't recognize your name, I think last week or the week before, but I remember Virginia Cox very well from the Antioch Washington Center where I taught and we talked about things like dialectics and 
dialectical materialism and other things. So I want to say hi to her, and I hope she can make the conference. Message me on Facebook, Virginia. But the philosophical question of organic and dialectical, um, without going into a lot of technical language, dialectics has to do with a logic by which we understand events and the movement of events. Mm -hmm. Organic is a way of talking about the relationship in our sense, in social, scientific, or sociological sense, the relationship between the actor or subject and the object that she or he is explaining and trying to understand. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, as Derek did about organic, what did you, how did you use that word, organic what? Uh, organic what? Organic growth. Organic growth, okay, we, we're gonna, but what he is talking about is, um, uh, again, a the internal processes by which the free school has and is developing. So that's what I would just say. Without we don't know, we won't go no further on that. That's all I would say to Virginia. But the big thing to Virginia is you need to come to this conference because uh, your voice will be a very important one. Oh, go go over there, um, uh, Danny just said that he agreed with your. He, Danny just said he agreed with your answer to this question, yes. and then Nabila adds, um, I think either potential partners, but Asian Cultural Arts Center, the Indian Church in Upper Darby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's okay, thank you. All right, any any more, sir? Any more about our planning where we are? Any questions about where we are? Like in terms of like accessibility for like folks who aren't part of planning, like when will like the location be shared and like the times oh, be shared? In fact, we're going to get all of that on the website, and oh, okay. we will be and hopefully, um, uh, Emily and Santina, Hopefully, we will have the website up and the leaflets and the face. And the Facebook page, and, and we'll be tweeting and sharing on Facebook, and we all of our all of our social media stuff will have links to the website, and we'll we'll have all of that. Yeah. We'll have all of that hopefully by next Saturday. Next Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. And leaflets and such and such and so forth. And, and you know, if if, if y'all need somebody to come over to Sherry's thing, and, and oh my God, yeah, you know me, we can. We'll, but but let me just say this: we'll we'll be in touch with you. We'll get your information, and we'll set up. Yeah. Okay. We'll do. Okay.
Okay. Um, if, if there's if there's nothing else that we have to discuss on this, I just again I want to encourage the highest level of enthusiasm and excitement about this. Uh, every member of the, of the preschool has to be engaged in this. Previous past members of the preschool need to get on board with this as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so on. So that's all we'll say right now. Okay. Now, as everyone has pointed out, you know, this, at least myself, that this is a, a political event and it, it is politically complicated because not because of us so much as the environment in which we operate. And it is, again, I, I will say this, I think it is unique and singular in American history. There has never been a crisis of this magnitude. Never, not even at the time of the Civil War. Uh, as you all are aware, there are so many ways of talking about this crisis. Uh, you know, again, and it's it's a crisis uh, where it's so great that a lot of the people who were chattering, uh, of, you know, about Trump's election in 2016, the, the onset of fascism, and so on and so forth, a lot of them don't don't hear them anymore. You know, they, they were all over social media, all over the internet. A lot of them have just stopped speaking. Uh, others have become, um, uh, I guess you could say cheerleaders for a type of hopelessness and, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, as you remember in 2020, uh, Black Lives Matter was everywhere and was everything. And as you know, if you believe the New York Times, the new civil rights movement. 10 black people were killed in Buffalo, New York a couple of months ago, and you didn't hear word from Black Lives Matter. So do you believe in Black Lives Matter or was that just a political fraud to elect Biden? You know, uh, was it really about black people and black life? And I don't think it was, but it seems that the air has been taken out, the oxygen has been taken out of the um, lungs of a lot of people who are talking a great deal. Now, one of those who is perhaps talking as much or more now than he was then is Noam Chomsky. We spent a lot of time on Noam Chomsky last week. Uh, just a couple things I would like to underline and emphasize. Um, to speak critically of Noam Chomsky is not a form of hating on Noam Chomsky. 
not at all. Uh, certainly not on my part. I consider, as I said, Noam Chomsky to be, uh, well, I, it's not just my consideration. I think anybody that looks at the objective evidence, he is the most cited uh, US academic, maybe the most cited US academic in the history of the American Academy. But not only is he cited, but his influence uh, goes across knowledge and academic disciplines. We mentioned some of them, linguistics, biolinguistics, mm -hmm. social linguistics, cognitive science, computer science, systems analysis, uh, I guess we could say sociology, anthropology. There are very, very few fields of ac academic knowledge uh, in the social sciences in particular, but I think even in some of the natural sciences that uh, Noam Chomsky has not and does not have an influence. It's unprecedented. It's almost breathtaking. Uh, his genius and the influence of his genius. But then uh, he is perhaps the, certainly for this time, the greatest public intellectual uh, as a dissident, as an outsider, uh, although you could say he's an insider and an outsider, but an outsider in terms of critiquing US foreign policy and US empire, there are few people with the influence of Noam Chomsky. He's written 150 books, some or good part of them co-authored, but many not, 150 books. He is very, when you see him lecture, he's very self-effacing. He, he doesn't like I talk. I talk too loud. I'm very embarrassed. Okay, but he is the quintessential rationalist, putting forward in both inductive and deductive ways complicated arguments. When I say inductive, he draws upon authoritative thinkers in various fields. For example, if he's talking about Central America, he seemingly will read every current foreign affairs article, every or the most important current book literature, on a topic, let's say Central America again, and then deductively draw conclusions from what this means, what that, what these, the current uh, expert opinion says about a certain topic. In this respect, and this is very interesting, he is a theorist of theory. It's a very, very interesting, it's a, you know, it's a, um, a theorist 
of theories. Mm -hmm. So he, and this is what is so astounding to me. And I, I, um, I just observed him in awe. I'm in awe of him. That doesn't mean I agree with him, you uh -huh. know, and all these things. But he's just, there's nothing like it. He's a phenomenon and kind of a phenomenon of his own invention and um, so on. It's something to see. Uh, and, and so it's not, um, to critique is not hating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even to critique does not mean that you have to have read, and certainly I have not, everything that he has written. Uh, a lot of what he has written, especially in grammars and language and linguistics, I wouldn't know what he was saying anyway. You know, it's at such a level of expertise. And everybody doesn't need to know that. But having said that, and having followed his career for some time and been influenced by his thinking, I think I am able to say certain things about where he is coming from philosophically and where his philosophical and ideological groundings may have served him well in the period before this great crisis hit the country. To put it another way, his philosophical and theoretical groundings or foundations do not serve Noam Chomsky well faced with this type of crisis. That is the essence of the critique. It is not ad hominem. In other words, it is not attacking the man. So if a person says, well, you said Chomsky X, Y, and Z, but how do you know what he was actually thinking and that he did? Well, hold it. We're not doing psychotherapy. And, you know, and maybe there's a place, but the point is, what do you say about a thinker of his influence? And there are millions, there are millions of people who follow Noam Chomsky living right now, millions of them around the world. So do we wait for four or five years after having read everything and listened to everything that he said or written before we comment? Is there not a fierce urgency of now? Can we not already know that we going into our 10th anniversary and Noam Chomsky look at the world in radically different ways? And can we not, recognizing that none of us in this room have the mind of a Noam Chomsky, I mean, few people could ever do what he has done. Acknowledging that, is that a reason not to say anything? Are we talking about a guru and a cult leader? Or are we talking about a man who has been right on many things, 
but is wrong on most things right now. That is what we are saying. It is, again, it is not ad hominem. It is not an attack upon the man. It's nothing personal. Now, if you see him as a guru, then you're going to see it as personal. Now, where is the point of departure between the Saturday preschool and Noam Chomsky? The point of departure is when he says that in effect, the crisis is of such a nature that there is no way out. People say, well, that's not what he said. No, it is what he said. How do you know that's what? Well, there are several indications. Well, one, let me just say this. Noam Chomsky is a very skilled, very cunning, very sophisticated uh, narrator, um, narrator, um, not just narrator, but um, arguer. He is, I mean, that's his initial field, language. He knows how to present an argument. He knows how to say things without, without saying everything. You see what I'm saying? He can say, for example, as he will do, that we face two great existential crises. We face the existential crisis of climate change and environment destruction, and we face the existential uh, crisis of possible um, uh, nuclear war. Okay? These are two of the greatest crises that humanity has ever confronted. You see, and he's right about that. But then he says, there is something else, a third dimension. And that is the fact that these, I don't use quotes, these populist uprisings all over the, the capitalist world, in other words, all over the white world, have kind of shut down thinking and, and listening to plausible arguments. In other words, he is saying that tens of millions of people in the capitalist world, in the white world, no longer accept the authority of, again, inverted commas, experts. They no longer accept that because a university professor said something that it is true. And so he is saying that you add climate change, sort of nuclear war, and then the rejection by tens of millions of people of experts. He said you put all of that together and then you consider the doomsday clock. If the three of those were not, then you're going to bring out the doomsday clock. The doomsday clock. And he says the experts have said no longer are they measuring the end of humanity in minutes. They've now gone down to seconds. And by last count, 
Well, this is I'm shaking in my boots, but please. By last count, we got like under 60 seconds. Now, this is the Union of Atomic Scientists. They came out with this in the mid-1950s after the Soviet Union and the United States exploded hydrogen bombs. They came to the, well, to, to make humanity aware of the danger of nuclear weapons, we will come up with a doomsday clock. Okay. Now, it may be an outmoded clock. I mean, you see what I'm saying? One of the things about the doomsday clock is that the doomsday clock assumed that the experts knew and that you had a passive mass of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, okay. So the doom, we got 60 seconds, under 60 seconds to go. But then Chomsky, I think Jerry brought this up last week, cites a scientist at the University of Arizona who has come out in the last five or so, 10 years maybe, and said, look, it's all over anyway. We cannot save the environment. Uh, we're on a, a slow but all, all, uh, increasing in velocity downward cycle to the elimination of the conditions for life on planet Earth. The guy has already said that. And shop, and I think we shouldn't say this, right? Yes, there is um, Todd, Todd Doherty. Oh, Todd Doherty, yeah, said that um, uh, this, uh, this scientist has already thrown in the town. I'm of the opinion that so is Chomsky. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he sees the greatest threat to human civilization as the environmental crisis, but he also sees nuclear war. Now, Todd or, or no. Hold on, hold on. Mm -hmm. So now, the question is: First of all, I want to address the people that say, "Well, you know." Um, you don't know enough about Chomsky to say anything about Chomsky. Well, first of all, if they would say that to me, no, I don't know enough about Chomsky. I want to know more about Chomsky. But for the second part of it, but that does not mean that I can't say anything about Chomsky. If that were the case, tell Chomsky to get off of every podcast that he can get on, knowing that young people in particular get a lot of their opinions and news from uh, uh, YouTube and podcasts. Mm -hmm. If you want us to be silent, tell Chomsky to be silent. Wow. As long as he speaks, we are obligated to speak. Right, right. And it is a moral political obligation. The other side of it is that not only do we not need to know all of his technical areas, of innovation, of contribution. But we can learn certain things by knowing his philosophical standpoint. And one thing this is, this is the free school for philosophy and black liberation. We devote a lot of time over these years to studying philosophy. Some people will say, well, not enough time. Well, but maybe not enough, but we have devoted time to the study of philosophy and are very sensitive to philosophy. And in fact, have stated over and over again, 
that philosophy is politics by other means. Now, if philosophy for, let us say, a person is this academic um, kind of armchair conversation with three or four other people that you talk to about these matters, well, that's not the way we look at philosophy. We look at philosophy as living, as political, as having profound ideological essence and meaning. That's why we do it and value it. You know, when we started studying Hegel, you know, of course, there are many naysayers. I call them lazy intellectuals or lazy activists. That's a very interesting thing. The lazy activist, you know, we usually assume if a person is an activist, she or he is very energized. No. You can be one of the laziest people in the world and be an activist for a year and a half. And then you, quote, I'm now burnt out. You were burnt out before you started, but you were looking for something for yourself, not for the broad mass of people. That's my, you know, I've seen it over and over again here in Philadelphia. You know, since the beginning of Black Lives Matter, let's say in 2015 or something like 2014, whenever that started, I'm asking myself, where's so-and-so? He was prepared to lay his body down on, on the Google Expressway and die because of this. Well, where's that person at now? Oh, they got burned out, you know? They got a good job. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That type of thing. Well, it was always another agenda. The fact of the matter is intellectual laziness, the failure to understand that philosophy and thought is always political, that ideas divide the world and ask the question, what side are you on? And philosophically and ideologically, if you're on the wrong side, you can't be on the wrong right side in activism. You can't be ideologically empty or indifferent, which is another way to put it. And then you're gonna be, in terms of activism, I'm a revolutionary. No, 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 it does not work that way. It does not work that way. So we have all, and if I'm talking too loud, we have always valued philosophy. Even before a lot of you came here, we were doing Antonio Gramsci. Uh, we were doing a lot of philosophers. Uh, uh, Hortense Spillers, the great uh, uh, mother of Black feminist literary theory. We've done... Uh, uh, Huey P. Newton, just we've done all of it. And the interesting thing is our treatment of Du Bois and King and Baldwin has always been to pull out the great philosophical foundations of their thought. Something that Noam Chomsky could never acknowledge. And this is another uh, Achilles heel, a weakness to the Noam Chomsky, which I'll get to in a minute, you know? So indeed, 
It is our moral duty. If we did nothing else but to ask the question, on what grounds are you coming with this doomsday narrative to those people we feel are our principal audience and our major concern, the children and youth? If you can't, and I say it to an old head like him, if you can't say anything more than that, why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just, because you ain't telling people something they don't know. Because for millions and tens of millions of children and youth in this country, they've already decided it's all over. They've already decided. You, so who are you talking to? So I say to those who got, a, got some questions about us doing this, I say to them, what do you propose to do with a 90-something-year-old man that's on every podcast that he can get on saying to young people and by uh, transmission to children, there ain't no future. We only got 60 seconds according to the doomsday clock. I feel that is the height of immorality. If you cannot after all of these years of your intellectual and political work, if you cannot begin to think of a way out, why don't you just shut up? And I say to those who want to defend them and be the devil's advocate on his behalf, either you make a commitment to something or just shut up. As far as the devil's advocate, uh, stance is concerned. That is what back in the Greek times they call sophistry. Mm -hmm. A sophist is a person that will make any argument and not be committed to anything. That's what sophistry is. There is no truth. It's just the process of debating. And a sophist is usually a person, you've probably seen them at well, uh, most black barbershops and beauty parlors are filled with sophists. The sophist is the person who comes to the barbershop every Saturday and is able to argue any point you want to argue because he is not committed to anything except arguing, debating. But we are not sophists. We don't value sophistry. We are not, and I, I can tell you for myself, I can't speak for you. I don't tolerate devil's advocates well. Sometimes I turn to cursing, you all know I can curse. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I think so the sophist is the coward. Okay, now, lastly, to Chomsky. If you read the vision statement, if you look at the art, everything that we're doing to lead up to the 10th anniversary, and we made this decision early on, children, people say, well, the political education of children, 
Well, the spiritual education of children and moms, all of that. Children are among the best, most committed thinkers. Hang out with children. It's better than hanging out with old people or old heads. I can, I can tell you, because I've hung out with them. I'm one of them, I guess. Although I have other contempt for most. I mean, even my friends who I love. But I just don't like that throwing in the towel, that cynicism. One thing about children and youth, especially children and youth, you don't confront that kind of cynicism. There's, you know, first of all, they're optimistic about knowing. Like Emily's formulation, they want to know ways of knowing. Children like debates. That's why they don't like school. Because I don't need the I don't need the teacher to be the final authority. I need the teacher to encourage to set up a framework of discussion. So once we decided that our primary, though not only audience, is children and youth. Maybe not, a lot of children won't come to the, the conference. Maybe not. But we want children and youth to know that somebody believes in you and that there is a future. At that point, our difference with Noam Chomsky is so great. There is no bridging the, the gap. There is nothing about what he is saying. There's nothing about what he is saying that is commensurate with anything we think or feel. That's why, you know, we said, what has held us together? Well, part of it is hope to find a way out. The other thing is Chomsky is a rationalist. I call him a neo-Kantian, or others would say he's a structuralist. In other words, Chomsky reasons from the preconditions of thought or the preconditions for the existence of a certain scientific phenomenon. Nothing wrong with that. It's Kantian, it's categorical, etc. And it's a it's rationalism. In fact, Kant might be the, the most influential rationalist in the world. That thinking, rationalism is associated with science and the un uh, how would you say it? the unconditional search for truth. That's what rationalism is a philosophical system is. And it has proved beyond anything that a lot of its initiators thought that it has proven to do that. Not that it is un that it goes unquestioned and, and, and maybe there's something that will come down the line that is even more developed than that. Rationalism is also associated with quantifying things like we do in mathematics. A rationalist is 
among the best thinkers in abstractions. Okay. Most math teachers are not that, by the way. Most math teachers don't know what the hell they're doing. By the way, parentheses. When mathematics is reduced to solving uh, equations in geometry or calculus and algebra, you know you ain't doing math no more. You solve it, you're doing, I mean, you're doing crossword puzzles. <laughs> and most math teachers are, are teaching how to do a crossword puzzle or how to be a medium level a chess player. It's bullshit. That's what I'm trying to get at without using that word. But rationalism kind of subsumes all of that. Rationalism as philosophical method, all of that is subsumed under it in one or another. Chomsky is a rationalist. Quintessentially so. But rationalism breaks, and this is what we're seeing, and this is what is so fascinating to me. Philosophically, it breaks at the point of crisis. In other words, I am able, and Chomsky has been able to make the most sophisticated and interesting arguments about all kinds of things. But the assumption is that, and I inverted Thomas here, Western democracy, and mm -hmm. the quote, is stable and secure. Rationalist philosophers have always had a problem with deep systemic and existential crises for which reason has no answers. I mean, take the Russian Revolution, great event. As I've said before, you know, if you want to know, you know, for real, for real, the Russian Revolution was V.I. Lenin's project. He did all the heavy lifting. He defined it. He envisioned it. He argued. And this is what is so fascinating about his body of work. All of those volumes, 54, I think there are now, at least in Russian. That this guy is so single-minded. He argued in field after field, be it sociology, be it um, uh, philosophy, be it political theory, state theory, history, wherever an argument or debate occurred, he would intervene on the side of revolutionaries. Fascinating. I mean, I'm just saying, how did you do that? Did you ever party? Did you ever, did you ever have a drink of vodka? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's why you can't, he cannot be underestimated. The fact that he is, you know, oh, we won't talk about him in the West, but, uh, well, come on, who are you going to tell you? Jefferson, but that ain't Lenin. Nobody. Now, but the rationalist, the philosopher, that's why he ridicules philosophers. 
Remember we talked about the book Materialism and Imperial Criticism and Grace Lee Boggs said, oh, it's just a hack job. I said, no, 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 no. What it was, was the study of what we today call the sociology of knowledge. He showed the politics of ideas and why revolutionaries had to care about philosophy because if not, the revolutionaries who did not have a philosophical sophistication would become, uh, 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 they would fall prey to the academic philosophers because they didn't know, but if the revolutionaries know philosophy, it's a little more difficult for professors to come and hoodwink the revolutionaries. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if I'm a revolutionary and I don't have time to read philosophy or I don't know philosophy, I don't know the basic questions of philosophy. Well, uh, if the ruling class drags out a philosopher that they want to make uh, their guy or their apologist, then the revolutionaries will have, have no arguments to contest what the philosophers are saying. Yeah. Lenin said, to hell with that. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. We will know philosophy, or at least people who are in the in his party, Lenin's party, would know enough philosophy to understand what the boundaries between revolutionary ideas and philosophy was. Highly significant. But most philosophers. Put this inverted commas again. View themselves as progressive, as even left. You, you know what I'm saying? And don't even get into black philosophers. Uh, I mean, I mean, the best a black philosopher can do is existentialism a la Camus, or uh, quote, more radical theology, a la Paul Tillich. If that's all you got, you won't. Well, I'm going to No, 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 no. See, the question is for Black, and you're right. Yeah, I can appropriate Bernard. I can appropriate Camus. Uh, the point is philosophy, and especially academic philosophy, is incapable, does not have the capacity to confront the great crisis. Whenever there was a great crisis and the possibility of a revolutionary transition, most philosophers ran to hide under the skirts of the ruling class. That's, they don't have, because the, the framing, especially of rationalism, breaks, crumbles, disintegrates at the point of confrontation with great crisis. My argument is then 
that what they're saying in Chomsky is a philosophical meltdown. It's not just personal. It's not just that he's an old man. He's an old man, but that brain is still strong. That kind of guy. I can assume is a philosophical meltdown. But since philosophy is politics by other means, it's a political and ideological meltdown. He, in other words, let me put this his philosophy has boxed him in. He can't find, based upon the way he thinks, his philosophical standpoint, he can't reason a way out. Does that make sense? You know, you just boxed in, you know, and you, you've never had to fight this kind of battle. And you do not know how to fight. But the tools, the weapons for fighting this kind of battle, you don't have because your tools, rationalist philosophy, are not constructed for this kind of battle. You're fighting with a switchblade at a time that you need an AR-15. Now put it that way. You can't win with a switchblade. You know, you can't win. That's where I locate the Chomskyan problem at this time. In fact, and you know, I guess uh, Shambhart has been looking at some, I know Lori uh, and Jerry has been looking at some of his lectures. He doesn't even talk the same way. He is now hysterical. He is um, uh, oh, well, irrational almost. And he's thrown all of that, the ways that he with presenting, all of that's thrown out the window. Hence, the Chomsky that we're listening to today seems very different from the Chomsky of 20 years ago in his mm -hmm. lectures. He seems quite different. And I think in some ways he is personally different, but I think we see the crumbling of the capacity to fight. He doesn't have it. And so that has to be said. Not, not in the interest of hating Chomsky, but in the interest of saying, no, this is not the way. This is not the way. Now, this type of pessimism is not unique to Chomsky. You know, uh, this is why Gerald Horn and his recent interview, we've talked about Gerald Horn quite a bit here, and on many angles, it was already apparent that Gerald Horn had given up. Of course, he has you know, certain hooks or certain uh, phrases that he thinks saves him 
from a rep from people recognizing that he has adopted a counter-revolutionary position, a position of retreat, at least a position of retreat. Well, he can, you know, you, you, you talk to him about anything and he's gonna invariably bring in settler colonialism. Well, I just ask you about double consciousness, well, settler colonialism. Well, what about uh, the black world, settler colonialism? Everything is settler, and then after settler colonialism, the 1619 project. And for Horn, he had, because Horn, again, is in his presentation, in his books, even though I would argue that Horn, you know, you don't write three books a year and not be messy and less than rigorous. I mean, the issues which he studies require sometimes a lifetime <laughs> to fully get. But that being what it what it is, I'm, of course, you know, in this moment of academic opportunism and academic ambition, you know, you have the more books you write, you know that your chairman of your department or your dean ain't gonna read all that mess, you know, because they got administrative responsibilities and. Plus, they're trying to write their books. So, so you say, I wrote a book. Okay, you get promoted more. So it's it's really an academic. It's, it has to do with academic opportunism in universities themselves, which are not about learning, but about making money and acquiring real estate. But horns normally very rational presentation and the stance likes very much like Chomsky of this is not my opinion, this is what the evidence shows kind of positionality. So I'm not saying this, I'm only reporting what expert opinion and evidence says. You see what I'm saying? It is a pose, it is a posture, it is a standpoint. Uh, so, you know, um, okay. Now, Horn has abandoned even that pose. And like Chomsky, and that's what we see in that interview with Chris Hedges, a hysteria. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, like with Chomsky, an unnecessary anger and grievance with the world and with most American people as if to say, you all fucked up. I tried to tell you. I tried to say this and you all wouldn't listen to me. Now you're fucked type of thing. You see it in Chomsky, you see it in Horn. I'm saying, well, what the dog? You're talking about, the, why you got to, why are you so angry and shit? You know, I mean, God damn. See, I know the brother too. So I mean, I'm, I'm saying this from a knowledge perspective. You know, and then you about ready to, you're going to jump out of here and punch somebody in the eye. You're mad at the world. And that that's always the giveaway. When a cat, or you could say, it could be a sign of early stages of Alzheimer's. <laughs> I had a, a very good friend. I couldn't figure out. I'm saying, we're just talking about X, Y, and Z. Why are you going to get mad all of a sudden and cuss me out? And I got to hang the phone up. I'm, 
I didn't realize Cat had early stages of Alzheimer's. No, I'm not making a joke, but you know, you get to that point where everything is, you know, you 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 look bad, you angry at everybody, and you you know, and you're about ready to cuss everybody out and fuck this and fuck, you know. I mean, you don't say it, but that's your attitude. But it is a sign that you cannot answer the question that confronts the masses of people. You have nothing to say to them, so you accuse them. Mm -hmm. Argument by accusation. Horn mm -hmm. is saying very much, you don't have a doomsday clock, but you may as well have it. It's almost as though he is welcoming disaster because he's saying you Americans, especially white Americans, poor people for the most part, you deserve this. Now, with both of them, and it's not difficult to detect it, there is no spirit of love. They don't love nothing and nobody. No soul. Which, which, no soul. Which means it's been about them all the time. Okay. This, another word, this cynicism. Cynicism, it's hard to define the word cynicism. For me, you know what it is when you see it. Mm -hmm. A cynic uh, is a person for whom nothing is good or right. Nothing is worth fighting for or standing for. That's a cynic. Uh, a cynic is usually a paramount narcissist. I know it all. A cynic, you know, really doesn't like people. Frankly, I don't know what kind of music they listen to. A lot of people go to avant-garde jazz, which is so abstract that you know, that it doesn't require you commit, you know, it seems to be just hated. There is no heart in a lot of it. And so it is with rationalism, so it is with the cynic, so it is with the narcissist. The narcissist don't love nobody but him or herself. The cynic, the cynic doesn't respect anything but himself. Okay, just some other parts of this. Chomsky has never met a black thinker that he respects very much. I, I noticed some time ago that whenever something like the civil rights movement or this plan, it's like, why are you bothering me or disturbing my complex mind with <laughs> issues of Martin Luther King or Du Bois, any of that, you know? You know, that's, you know, he, he treats most 
black people as children, as social, cultural, intellectual children. Uh, he can understand Beethoven, but Ellington, well, that's, you know, that's for people who can't understand Beethoven. It, so the question becomes, if you don't understand that period in American history, there is no future then. There is no future. If the only thing that counts are elite uh, discussions about profound ideas and the people are not a part of the equation, of course there's no future, okay? Um, so Ch Chomsky doesn't deal with black folk or black thinkers or black anything at all. I mean, and whenever he goes, you can hear him talk and he will say, this expert has in this, in this in the journal nature or this place or the other, but everybody's white. Everybody's white in the United States of America. Nah. Because to the question, what side are you on? The masses of black people have more than not been on the right side of history. And their leaders have more than not been on the right side of it. So you don't see them, there is no America. You don't see America. Maybe you can see Germany, maybe England, but you're not talking about this country. So he completely dismisses them. Horn does something very different. In a career sense, he is considered a historian of the Black left, of the Black communists. Now, there's always been something very interesting for us. He talks about Black, well, okay, I'll get that. He talks about Black communists. Talk about William L. Patterson. He talked about Ben Davis talk about uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois. Really doesn't talk about Du Bois. He will talk about Robeson, but he never mentions Henry Winston. Now, I knew William Patterson. I knew Louise Thompson Patterson. I didn't know Robeson. I didn't know uh, Ben Davis. But these people did know that. William L. Patterson looked upon Henry Winston with deep reverence and respect. So he was, Winston was not a quote, throwaway or uh, we just put him up there because we need a black person in leadership type of thing. Winston was understood and respected by the very people that Horn writes about as a huge figure. But he never, I mean, he writes about everybody, but never Winston. That's already a giveaway. It's a giveaway. More than that, given the way Du Bois spoke about Winston, we only got a snippet of it because he spoke, that speech was given, given extemporaneously. But 
if nothing else, if Du Bois said that, then Winston must be a historical figure and an important figure in the development of the communist movement in the United States, but he's not mentioned. That's one thing. But then, and I'm gonna end up talking. How do you deal with Du Bois? There are two figures that are always, if you don't know anything else about a scholar or a thinker or an activist, you can ask about two people. What is their attitude towards Du Bois? And what is their attitude towards King? Those are the two, very two very important figures. If, let's say you're a follower of Marcus Garvey, you know, I don't like Du Bois, Du Bois this, Du Bois the other, yeah, uh -huh. Du Bois was assimilationist, Du Bois preferred white people, uh, yada, 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 yada. Okay, that's your position. No substance to it, no ground, you just talking. That's, yeah, we get a lot of them, they're in the school districts, they talk in trash day and night, teaching children that. Then there is the scholarly thing, for example, David Levering Lewis, the biographer, the most important, I would say the most important biographer of Du Bois, writes the two volume biography of Du Bois. In many ways, it's good. I won't say over the top good, but it's good. But in many ways, it is blasphemous and a put down of Du Bois, okay? First of all, and here's where Du Bois becomes a problem for them, people like Lewis, David Lewis. And Du Bois says, he says, look, when I wrote The Souls of Black Folk, which I still think is a genius work, and. and a great sociological, social scientific work. He said, I still was more liberal than radical. What he was saying is trying to find a point, point of intersection between the liberal elite and black progressive opinion. We can get further into that, but that's kind of the strategy of the work. He says, by the time I write uh, Dark Water, shit, I've, I've taken the veil off. I'm coming hard now. I don't see a way out in the framework of liberal democracy. That assumption I discarded. And from that point on, 1920 forward, he becomes a supporter of the Soviet Union, of the world revolutionary process, of the anti-imperialist, anti-fascist struggle, and the rest is history. David Levering Lewis says, well, that was, that was Du Bois going more radical, more left, because he had lost a base and an audience among ordinary Black people. So in other words, Du Bois was not a great thinker, 
all of this Black Reconstruction and Dusk of Dawn and the world in Africa and Russian America, well, all of that was a the result of a disappointed, rejected, at one time huge figure among Black people intellectually. It's all personal. And therefore, when we look at Du Bois, the last almost 45 years of his life, it is the story of a person who was just, you know, doing all of this because he can't accept the fact that he's no longer a paramount figure among Black people. Therefore, none of his thinking, none of his theories, none of his writings on war and peace and science and, and, and empire, on, on the dictatorship of the proletariat, of democracy, none of that is worth even paying attention to, okay? Okay. That's supposed to be the friend of Du Bois. You see what I'm saying? So what David Levering Lewis is doing is really justifying the McCarthyite Cold War attack upon him. This is what it is. And in the same vein, upon Robeson as well. Okay. Just one, I just quickly, just a couple more. Martin Luther King is presented as naive, assimilationist, bourgeois, liberal, um, and, and at the worst, just a performer. So you get the way you dismiss Martin Luther King, one of the ways you do it is saying that, well, Barack Obama is the new Martin Luther King. Once you go there, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've just dismissed you. I've erased you from history. Everything that you ever stood for that got you assassinated by the American ruling class. Oh, you're nothing but, uh, in fact, Barack Obama is the new iteration of you. Okay, you've just dismissed Martin Luther King Jr. So why should I pay him any attention? Or you take the way they treat Baldwin. You know, Baldwin, after the assassination of Martin Luther King writes the book, No Name in the Street, two very, very, very important essays. Well, you can dismiss Baldwin and say, he was just a suicide prone, uh, weak, gay black man. Well, once you say gay black man, that's another way of just saying weak anyway, you know? You reduce the cat. And everything he's saying is from a, from a position of weakness and um, uh, anxiousness. So there's nothing there. Well, look at it. Just take the opposite. Have you ever heard Karl Marx referred to in those terms? I don't know whether he was gay or bi or what. But you never get into his sexual, I won't even say preferences. That's a broader thing than an identity. You can have a lot of preferences, you know, so I won't get into that. But <laughs> Marx's sexual preference never comes up in the evaluation of his ideological importance. We could talk about Hegel, you know. You could say, well, did Hegel use deodorant? No, he didn't use deodorant. So 
he writes about he writes the science of logic uh, because he well some would say because he was constipated, and back then they didn't have whatever they used. For, <laughs> yeah, there've been people. Yeah, he was kind or whatever, whatever. How could he write something like this? He had to be, you know, suffering from something. You don't hear that. But when it comes to Du Bois, or when it comes to King, or when it comes to Baldwin, his ideas are trumped by the crises of their personal lives, alleged crises of their personal lives. Now, here we are. We are saying that not only did Du Bois write great works, he is a founder of sociology. We say that sociology brings more to the table of understanding, as Du Bois called, the study of man than does political economy. Du Bois's whole life is anchored to this very sophisticated sociology. So that's one thing. Okay, so well, oh, he wrote the Philadelphia Negro, it began urban sociology, and forget about it after that. But there's more to it than that. Or, oh yeah, he wrote The Souls of Black Folk, and since, you know, when we talk about Black people, we talk about soul music, soul food, soul this, so, you know, we got soul, and we super bad. But that ain't what he was. He was using the word in the German sense of the collective mind of a people. God damn it. But to reduce it. So why is it important? He's just talking about black people and yada yada. Okay, okay, I just want to say horn. The horn interview with Chris Hedges. I didn't want to look at it. Because you know I'm very sensitive. <laughs> no, I get angry too easily. So I asked my friend and colleague Jeremiah Kim, "Would you do the heavy lift?" He looked at it and he said, "Diane." So I looked at it. Gerald Horn, in his treatment of Du Bois, indicates that he has taken a path the opposite of Du Bois. Whereas Du Bois over the last 43, 45 years of his life, increasingly identified with world revolutionary and liberatory struggles. Horn renders Du Bois a weak and insignificant thinker, more so because he is black. Isn't that interesting? A man that writes about the black left speaks about Du Bois as insignificant, and I would argue because Horn sees most black thinkers as less than. How do I know that? There is nothing in the logic, let us just take, of Black Reconstruction that in any way is commensurate with the colonial 
settler colonial theory. Nothing, nothing at all. So to superimpose that upon Du Bois is to diminish Du Bois in the name of something that you believe in. You diminish Du Bois and you elevate your damn self. Yeah, everybody get, okay. I talk too much, but let me, I'm gonna end on this. This is the ideological architecture, geography that we're operating in. Can we defeat them? I think we've defeated them already. I think the fact that anyone who listens to us for half an hour can see the emptiness of all of this noise. I think we have, but we have not defeated them in the broad public, the university. We don't control universities. We don't control faculties. People are hired for politics. It's not because, you know, I was fired from Temple. What was the argument given? We don't need Du Bois. This is a quote, black man, end quote, saying that. Somebody, well, I'm gonna get into that. I was gonna say something thuggish, but, and they said, no, we're, we're interested in culture. So people said, well, what culture? Hip hop culture. You don't need Du Bois, but you need hip hop. So we got five courses on hip hop, everything from Tupac to Jay-Z to Lil Wayne. And I guess now they got um, Megan the Stallion, all that. But we don't need Du Bois. Culture. This is what, this is the headwind. I ain't even gonna mention Dr. Umar Johnson from North Philly, but that's <laughs> well anyway, but that's that's the clown car and the circus train. Okay, uh, this is what we're up. This I mean when I say this, it is not believe me, it is not an insurmountable task. I think in a lot of ways for us, it's easy work. We figured it out. That's surfing. We got the key to opening it up. The fact of the matter is now that we move forward. But I just wanted to bring that to y'all's attention. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, these two figures you brought up, uh, Gerald Horn and Noam Chomsky, both yes. come from the universities. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, I guess, products of the university, which I think. What we now kind of determine is that the university, as opposed to being a place of enlightenment, has become sort of this um, this factory of despair, this place to <laughs> That's a beautiful propagate thing. despair as far of despair. as it can. Um, and I was thinking, because you brought up Lenin, I remember Lenin said something to the effect that um, despair is typically found um, in those who um, have uh, you know, have, have no, are incapable of struggle 
and don't understand from which where evil actually comes. Don't see any way out and are, are incapable of struggle. Um, and, and see that says Holy Christ so about evil. He said, despair is typical of those who are um, uh, not really aware from where evil actually comes. Um, uh, you know, don't don't see a way out as a result and are incapable of struggle. And I think he said something to the effect of like it doesn't belong in a proletarian class. It's, mm -hmm. it's of a different class. Which <laughs> another thing I think about is that that. Uh, Emil Carl Cabral quote saying that you know you can tell uh, people's revolutionary potential based on the difference with, between their culture and the culture of the class that's oppressing, them. Right. which is what I think about when I you know I was I was watching a bit of the of Joe Biden's uh, uh, State of the Union address in Philadelphia uh, with the dark lights and the red beams and um, it's clear the there's fear. Honor guard. I'm sorry. The Marine Guard is here. Right. Right. It's clear there's a there's a sense of fear in the air, mm -hmm. but I, I I don't think the, the class he represents can actually speak to the people because the people have economic issues, they have economic problems, and all he could talk about was Trump and the election. And uh, you know he speaks from his own class's perspective. They are very afraid of the situation. We don't need to be afraid of their fear. <laughs> um, and so um, you know another thing that you were talking about how love is so essential. I think of you know, what Chase said, which is he couldn't conceive of a revolutionary if they didn't have any sense of love. Um, and of course, you know, he had, you know, a lifetime of setbacks and, you know, he was ultimately killed, but to the, to, to the very end, he had a sincere understanding of where these dynamics are coming from and where they ultimately have to go. Um, like, I just think of even being in America and we're told that it's just this, this, this cesspool, this violent and right. decaying and horrible thing. And there's, and uh, oh, woe is us to be here, to be living in the, you know, the pit of despair. Well, Che, che I remember Che said um, basically like how lucky it is to be American. Mm -hmm. How lucky you are, you are at the belly of the beast. You have the most important job. That's so beautiful. Just a completely different perspective, you know, obviously someone who didn't get raised on despair. Um, and, you know, the, the boys himself talks about, you know, human beings have this infant potential. I mean, the way he writes and, and how he, he, he um, carried himself throughout his life shows he had a sincere attachment to love of people. Um, and that's where I think these people have really, have really lost their way is that they've been completely untethered by these institutions mm -hmm. from the people that they supposedly want to help. And so then they're just left with, you know, despair, pessimism, cynicism, and, and you know, um, a, a uh, attachment to this other class that uh, yeah. Yeah. doesn't really represent them or any of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 go ahead, uh, Jerry, and then Samir. Yeah, there's also a comment on what you said about the material imperial truth. Material imperial criticism, yes. Material imperial criticism. Materialism and the imperial criticism. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, then Lennon wrote, because that, or at least that clicked for me as like, kind of like a, when like a way of thinking was shifted um, <laughs> almost like in a different epochal kind of way. Because like in showing that um philosophy are really is 
the thing about philosophy or even thought itself or um, ideas at, at wait, what I'm trying to say is that when ideas can be used mm-hmm. um, basically and, and it doesn't matter in a particular sense like you, you don't have to be an expert in philosophy mm-hmm. to understand philosophy so that it's dependent on a particular idea of the way you um, <laughs> that that's what anchors the different sciences or anything really then that was important um, for me, uh, at least in the apropos of the conversation and even Noam Chomsky being affected by ideas, essential ideas and characteristics in the ideas that um, as a rationalist, or if you think yourself as um, whatever said science, um, you it's like you can't see the almost a larger picture that the particular science is like working in, if that makes sense. Um, But that also was interesting for me because I know that in in the fact of uh, like, if some, Lenin was able to help change um, the Soviet or Russia into Mm -hmm. Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, like changed the world in a lot of ways. And I think like uh, with any revolutionary process, there is that kind of like the change of the human being, the change of the world, or that kind of thing that happens simultaneously. So I thought that was interesting because in the free school, I know we can think about ideas um, as like I can cut through different categories of knowing things because of the the way that we think um, in free school. Uh, if I hadn't gone to free school, I'm not sure if I would be able to know that. But I do also suspect that there, at least there's a possibility that the ruling class know that there's an idea, that they use ideas in different variety of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like in the sciences and the arts and Absolutely. so on. Absolutely. So Absolutely. there's. I'm sorry, I no, but no, but I just think it's interesting because I don't know if maybe I would have known about the importance of ideas if I hadn't come to preschool. But I also um, think that there are essential ideas that carry weight. This, this, um, this is good. If I could just say, society, you're hitting, yeah. this is what Kathy's work mm-hmm. addresses that ideology is infused in all areas of knowledge at least as in even like, in the even mm-hmm. in physics as we talked in mm-hmm. no i just think that there well one i'm coming to the point where it is really important to be anchored in i in an idea um mm-hmm. but it's also important mm-hmm. or even foremost important to be anchored in the right ideas yes. um <laughs> and i and I think it's interesting because as because I was also in that conversation you're having, thinking of myself looking for um, different ideas to be anchored upon. Like I did, like there was exploration in math and things like that too. But I think with young people, period. Um, I'm, at least I'm coming to the point where I'm trying to say that. Uh, 
it's both this the the you know you're trying to find who you are as a person mm -hmm. but what is it that you can contribute to society so what is it that you're trying to say um and so on and i yeah so i think ideas are definitely important and in some senses at this time it seems like the boom class wants to take ideas like out of the mix and say that it's not about ideas at all or it's not about anything mm -hmm. real like history or the past or um but that in turn strips away a young person's sense of themselves and their characteristics but it then doesn't allow for the society to produce anything mm -hmm. of um of substance so there's a problem there but yeah i'm gonna come back to one poem on jerry and then Samira today yeah, I think um, for the Gerald Horn interview, first of all, it was uh, Amadi Ajamu who shared it with the free school page. So um, that was how I first saw it. But um, I think you're like, I, I also like totally agree that the overall impression I got from hearing Gerald Horn talk about you boys was that he's very uncomfortable with you boys. He's uncomfortable with Du Bois intellectually, ideologically, what Du Bois represents, because fundamentally, I think what Gerald Horn is actually substantially responding to is he represents, first of all, you have the ruling class who feel like the rug has been pulled out from under them because the people no longer, clearly no longer actually trust them, believe in them, have faith in their ability to rule or govern in any kind of um adequate way and i think in response to that you have this sort of yeah the cadre of intellectuals academics especially those who deal with you know these questions of like race class all of that but fundamentally they those those intellectuals are most comfortable with a world where racism will never be solved racism will always be entrenched in american society where imperialism will always be this sort of fundamental, unchanging, immutable, like just thing that you can never escape from. And that is the world that they're most comfortable operating within. And so while the ruling class has also felt like the ground has been pulled out from under them, also people like Gerald Horn, I think, feel that way as well, which is why you see someone like Horn like move even closer towards the ruling class position. Um, like it's, it's just like remarkable to think about, as Emil was mentioning, like the Biden speech, like on Thursday or whatever, um, where he is going very hard now against the MAGA people, against the Trump people, saying that they are fascists mm -hmm. um, or semi-fascist, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, like that ultimately is the position of Chris Hedges, Gerald Horn, um, like Noam Chomsky as well. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I think like a lot of, I don't know, it's just like so, it just felt so, first of all, such an inadequate, I don't know, just an inadequate way of dealing with the present moment. Like this is a time when nothing is really, nothing should really be taken for granted as we've been talking about in the free school throughout the various weeks, none of the old categories I think should really be mm -hmm. assumed to be still the case. Mm -hmm. And um, thing like 
very important changes are taking place amongst the American people. No one knows for sure how it's going to turn out, but in reaction to all of that, your response is just to say that, oh, we live in a time of you know, rising conservatism, mm -hmm. rising like neo-fascism, mm -hmm. and that is the sole explanation for all of this. And what that does is, first of all, you are providing a kind of, almost it's like you're comforting the ruling class, Absolutely. but you're also comforting yourself mm -hmm. and like the, the left to some extent, because it's like, instead of responding to the actual situation, instead you're just gonna be like, oh, like, no, this is really just settler colonialism. It's really just like a kind of resurgent, like white nationalism, all of that stuff. And, and yeah, and I think um, it's, yeah, I was just, I was just kind of appalled by how much, no matter what question Chris Hedges would throw at um, Gerald Horn, whether you're talking about double consciousness, as you mentioned, bringing up, you know, this concept of the propaganda of history from Black Reconstruction, actually even asking him, like, what, like, what was the point of Black Reconstruction? All Gerald Horn can say is, oh, it's all about the colonialism. And it's like both the double, it's like the double crime of, first of all, history historically as a historian instead of taking your historical subject on their own terms and taking this their their thought seriously as how as how they understood it just as a historian you would want to understand how did you boys see the world if you are if that is the subject of your historical research how did you boys see the world then first of all you are imposing you're projecting your own present day political agenda onto you boys but also that simultaneously reflects the fact that you're also projecting your own kind of insecurity, your own feeling of like a personal crisis onto also the present day situation in the world right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, it was it was very clarifying. I think to see just the fact that he couldn't he couldn't respond to any of the even like these like pretty good quotes that Chris Hedges was throwing at him. Um, quotes about double consciousness, quotes about, you know, the debate with Booker T. Washington, what was actually about, um, quotes from the propaganda history chapter of Black Reconstruction that said just, yeah, it's like you have no, like no actual intellectual creativity to be able to like operate within that, the world that Du Bois, like the kind of intellectual framework that Du Bois was trying to advance because fundamentally, yeah, like, as, as others have said, we operated from the standpoint of we believe in Du Bois's concept of the immortal child and the endless <laughs> possibility of children and of the future. We take seriously the future of the American people as a question. And instead of all of that, you don't like people like Gerald Horn don't take that seriously. They're more concerned about protecting like their project, protecting mm. because you it's like, yeah, they construct this like straw man almost of like, they feel like they're being attacked by quote unquote other historians. And they they kind of set it up as a straw man of like, oh, it's like the ruling class is attacking like POC historians like me, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, all of that stuff. But actually what you're most scared of is, as, as Mila was saying, you're most scared of the American people, actually, fundamentally. You're scared that people will no longer believe in the agenda, the project that you've been putting out all this time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Go ahead, Samir. Um, 
other experiences that I, I was a big fan of Noam Chomsky, a follower, someone who studied um, his work. And I'm also a big fan of uh, Norman Finkelstein. Um, and Norman Finkelstein and Edward Said. And I've realized now, or I'm, I think I also realized back then, that one of the reasons why I liked them so much was um, they did the heavy lifting. They did. They provided you the argument. You just had to listen to them. And Noam Chomsky would uh, deconstruct everything in the Israeli or Norman Finkelstein would deconstruct everything in the Israeli-Palestine conflict from '48 to '67 and beyond, and you know, even present day. And um, uh, Emily had said that this this is a man thing uh, because. Uh, uh, Russell Peters has a skit where he talks about uh, asking Arab men directions, and even, even if they don't know, they're going to give you the answer, because even what's worse than being wrong is a man who doesn't know. <laughs> so um, that, that uh, I, I grew up going to an all-boys school for 13 years, so I know what a boys club looks like, and, um, you know, like you said about these men being impressive, even in their older age, Edward Said has a interview where he has chemotherapy, has cancer, and he's dying, and he's still, you know, not as handsome as he <laughs> was. But you know, Norman Finkelstein talked when he came Saturday Free School about how handsome Edward Said was, and how charismatic he was, and how he was able to climb the university ladder doing that. And Norman Finkelstein is not that charismatic, so he didn't have that. Um, but all the all three of these men, they to reiterate what Emil said, they um, made a compromise with the academy, with the exception of Norman Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it, it goes back to, I guess, rationalism. And these men, they had such clean arguments, and that was the attraction. Like everything that you know, and not only did they have clean arguments, but they could pull it out from their memory, you know, um, in their deep, you know, computer-like memories. And um, the issue with the academy is that it's not teaching you to think critically, like Norman Finkelstein so awesome, uh, so so often brings up, but uh, they provide you the answer. And then in a time of crisis, when these frameworks no longer provide answers, the, it all collapses like the Yeats poem. <laughs> and um, I guess to conclude, what we're uh, attacking here today is, uh, I don't want to say the methodology, I hope someone helps me out with this, but uh, their method of arriving to the truth is not satisfactory. We could we can see that, and that's the, the method in the university. And that's what you're not allowed to go up in the university and talk about is you're only allowed to use their method to arrive at the answers. And uh, generally, it's considered rude when you, um, when someone prevents, uh, presents you in an academic setting, if someone presents you their findings, considered rude to attack someone's methodology because you're all doing the same thing. Or it's considered to be a, a slight, you know, you know, why are you asking how I came to this conclusion? Um, so is, is that is that the correct word? Is it the methodology? Methodology is 
this is, if I could just say, it's a very important point that you made. This methodology is built upon uh, even deeper assumptions. Of, and this is where philosophy and politics are so uh, entangled with methodology and the truth. And I, I agree with you, I, I don't mean to, but I agree with you completely that, um, that there is a lot about science and scientific research that scientists and researchers would prefer not to talk about. And these very questions of methodology, maybe if it's the technical side, but certainly not in the philosophical sense, and certainly not talking about um, philosophical assumptions. Just quickly, that is what we were discussing in the debate over quantum mechanics, the unresolved questions which are philosophical, even up to this day, and how the Cold War intervened to guarantee that the questions raised at the Copenhagen Conference Niels Bohr's and Einstein and would never be fully brought to the which were philosophical questions. We'll go for this Yeah, I was going to uh, go back to this question where everyone was talking about what I think how you formulated as how rationalism is uh, in times of crisis. And I mean, you know, and like how, you know, Chomsky seems unable to reason a way out. And every time I hear this, it almost seems that, that you know it, it betrays uh, it a bit it betrays a dogmatic you know preference over reason over humanity and I think that's why you know Du Bois is is so important because you know how he talks about in the essay in his essay Galileo how he talks about the fact that you know science is a great and worthy mistress um but you know humanity is greater which science serves. And I think, like you know, I I mentioned. You just repeat that. that, that I'm trying to paraphrase. The, yeah. Well, I, I have it here, which I will turn. Just to read it. It's worth reading to all of us. Yeah. So he says that science is a great and worthy mistress, but there is one greater, and that is humanity, which science serves. One thing that is greater than knowledge, and that is the man who knows. And you know, I think this, yeah, I mean, we have been reading this in uh, in the other reading group uh, last week. And I think this is important because I think it uh, it tries to answer this question of, you know, like when we talk about rationalism and reason, we have to keep uh, reminding ourselves that, you know, reason came from somewhere that at, 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 the, at the center of it is humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, and like, you know, this question I think has been, uh, it has been asked and you know, addressed by um, revolutionary figures at times of revolutionary change. And, you know, for instance, how King talks about the fact that, you know, reason devoid, I think he says that reason devoid of the purifying power of faith cannot free itself from distortions. <laughs> Right. And, you know, he, like, you know, he was talking about this because, like, you know, we can't simply go by the current or, or the older modes of reasoning in times of revolutionary change. And I think this is reflected in, um, it's, I think it's reflected in, in times of, in, in all times of revolutionary change that, that we have seen in history. 
like you know how we have been talking about in the like in, in in past weeks in the free school about the role of philosophy in you know preceding the more tangible revolution like for instance you've been talking about uh how how you know Descartes philosophy actually preceded the French revolution mm -hmm. and so did you know Marx and Hegel philosophy preceded the Russian revolution and it seems that um in times of of revolutionary change reason itself develops and it it's it's yeah. often yeah. it's not uh it's not you know easily understood in terms of the existing ex, ex, existing idea of reason i don't know if i'm making sense yeah. but you know and you know this thing i mean it was also reflected in in you know gandhi because for instance he was also his reasoning was not understood by a lot of people including nehru like you know in early times when you know he would say that a lot of people were unsatisfied by gandhi's um ways forward in different times for instance i mean for instance during calling off the the non corruption movement and so forth but what nehru concludes in in later years is that gandhi actually understood the mind of the masses and you know that preceded for him and you know it it's something i mean it's it's not really like you know talking about reason this way is not really trying to go back to the medieval times of you know pre-reason but it's about you know developing reason further because it's not separated from the masses of humanity and i think this is the it seems that you know this is what we are trying to do at this time too that in our understanding of of what it means to be reasonable is not enough it's you know it it does not it does not uh, meet the moment we are in, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you, you can, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Can I mention, well, well, there was a, there are a couple articles, I forget the time, it's like King, the non-conformist. Right, right, right. The right. huh? transform non-conformist. Yeah, the transform. And then um, my journey to non-conformist. I think we should, um, uh, find a way to bring those essays forward in the 10th anniversary mm -hmm. because I if I could just because I'm you know this idea that there is more to this if the only thing at stake was that we had to consult experts right. at universities if that's the whole thing well we got more university experts than ever in history and we know and we're in the deepest crisis in it. but this is very i mean i think but go, go ahead i mean just i'm i'm no i i was done yeah i was just talking about in like you know this the fact that you know we have seen historically that the current understanding of reason has not sufficed um revolutionary moments mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think like you talking about reason and also talking about knowledge because even bringing up like we're not saying go back to medieval times. It reminded me of a phrase we used in the the vision statement that um, in our reading group we realized that Du Bois also uses this term ancient knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing that is forgotten so easily. It's almost like hard for academics, but then like the left today to remember is the ancient knowledge of what is right, what is good, what is moral, what like love, um, revolutionary love and it was interesting. It's interesting because, um, well, so yesterday for work, I have to like staff strike lines right now. But it was interesting because I was talking to this um, 
like 40 year old white man who never went to college, went directly into like working in a nursing home when he graduated high school or dropped out of high school or something. And he was saying something that Du Bois also says, which is like, he's like, this country, what's wrong with this country is that we don't reward people who work hard. He, you know, he's basically talking about the contradiction, which is that this is a society, it's not just an economic issue, it's a social moral issue, philosophical issue, where there's an a gap in, that has been so removed from ancient knowledge that no one can even recognize it anymore, which is that this is a society that values millionaires and a way of reaching success where you cheat, you lie, you do bad, yeah, yeah. rather than rewarding the ordinary person who works hard. And it was just interesting talking to him because similar to children, it's also like, this is a guy who never, it's almost like never, there are certain assumptions about the world that he just doesn't subscribe to. And I wonder how much it is also because like so removed from academia, it's so different than Chomsky, all of that. But I just really like the way you said Shambarta talking about, like this is a crisis where it's not reason or what you understand through reason is not enough. What about ancient knowledge that's so connected to the masses of just ordinary people, like people. And I think it's something that still exists and like with the people in society, it's just, it's something that people like Horn and Chomsky don't get because I think they're removed, like you're removed from. Yeah, if I, if I could speak to that, I think one thing let that- me, let, let, me, let me let, uh, <laughs> let me let Pulva, and then, then you, if you don't mind, because uh, Pulva had her hand up and then. Yeah, you, I, no, they did totally hand okay. up. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, I'm sorry, I gotta get no your worries. name in my head. No I'm worries. sorry, forgive me. I just wanted to uh, build on what, Shambhata and Emily have been talking about about a new kind, a new way to reason in these times because this is a different, fundamentally different time. Um, and uh, just building on what Shambhata was saying about, you know, what is reasonable being related to, you know, where humanity is at at this moment. I mean, you can't use, and also I think Jeremiah was touching on this, that you can't use the old models of rational uh, thinking for this present time, because in many ways, this is not a rational society. It's not a reasonable society. In a reasonable society, you wouldn't be able to explain something like Kensington, and you wouldn't be uh, able to explain, My goodness, yes. um, you know, just this is not reason. So we have to develop new, new ways of you know, even defining rational thinking, what is rational in this time? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that will, like you were saying, not come from experts, it will come from where people are at. Mm -hmm. And it'll come from, and this is what the free school is, and the free school gets it, that it will come from a new iteration of the human being itself, a new kind of people. And uh, this is the thing that Chomsky, when he sounds so crazy, and when he sounds mm -hmm. so scared that doomsday is at our doors and all of that, um, He's suffering from this inability to make the break from an expert-oriented world. He's just to make that step that, you know, okay, not experts, but from the people, the solution will come, which is what preschool is um, trying to bring forth through the 10th anniversary. And not to be able to make that break, to be uh, cynical, makes you irrational and, you know, mm -hmm. you act in ways that you know, Chomsky and Gerald Horn are acting in. And I also wanted to, because the way Doc, your, the way you were formulating the whole thing, it made me realize something 
that I've struggled with in the past to understand because I used to think of cynicism as like a personal trait. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm a cynical person and I just have, there are people who are not cynical and then there are people who are cynical. But the way you formulated things, it made it very clear that cynicism at this point is a moral and political choice. It's a choice. It's It's not just, oh, I just prefer, you know, I prefer to think that, you know, so I, I'm not disappointed later. I just prefer to think that, you know, nothing's going to work out and so on. But you're making okay. that choice because you're not okay. putting your faith in the people. And just last thing, because so many things are going on, you know, I'm probably not formulating any of them well. But I also feel this is related to the attack on religion and faith in God, you know, because I'm not talking about a retreat into religion as a solution to this problem, but to have faith in God, for people to have faith in God is to have faith in their children and in a future and that's why today experts have come really hard on you know super you know what going back to religion or faith especially in places like India what what it means it's really an attack on a belief that there will be a future that there is something that has that is going to take us through you know um I don't know if that yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, faith mm-hmm. and interconnectedness, yeah. and I think the. Well, don't go ahead. Yeah. Tell me your name. Just one more time. Gasso. Gasso. G A S S O H. But if we're in the streets in front of police, GG. GG. So, okay. <laughs> yes. So I think like one thing, a couple things that I'm thinking about, and specific to Horn and Chomsky, I'm wondering something that's often brought up in the Black Alliance for Peace. Um, and PACA, which is an organization in, in Washington, D.C., they often quote uh, Kwame Ture, it's like the lonely revolutionary and the need to be a part of an organization. And what, what are, you know, when I look at Horn and Chomsky, people who have such massive social capital mm-hmm. and currency, mm-hmm. you know, are they, are they calling the people to action? Are they encouraging people, join an organization, engage in mutuality? right? Be uncomfortable. I think one of, uh, I'm studying to be a clinical social worker, so like a a solid ego defense is intellectualization, which I think like rationalism speaks to that. This, like, I'm just going to just intellectualize everything. I'm not going to feel. That's another mode of knowing, feeling, being uncomfortable. Why are you, why why don't you want to sit with the discomfort of Mm -hmm your positionality to the destruction and your obligation to unpacking and dismantling the systems that perpetuate destruction and death, this death culture. What is your, what is your obligation to that? What is your position to that obligation? And, it's, and I think that's where we see this, the cynicism from Horn and, and, and Chomsky that they themselves no longer, or maybe never wanted to be uncomfortable and, and dismissed feeling and interconnectedness with fellow human beings that aren't petty intellectuals mm-hmm. and can quote mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z and mm-hmm. from there and there. Like, no, what, what, what happens to just my lived experience and understanding that I, 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 I know not because of books, not because of theory, but I, and not because I went to the academy, but I know that I have a solidarity with the person next to me because we're all in this together. That, that feeling, that belief, that faith that we will get through, they've lost that. 
that it's, it's too much, it's, it's, too, it's too heady. And there are other ways of knowing, there are other types of intellect. See, everything has failed then. Everything that their careers have been built upon, all of that has failed then. And you, I agree, but go, go ahead, Emil. Yeah, I like what you were saying about feeling being another um, part of our knowledge and our emotions are a part of reality. Um, and I feel like a big part of uh, Chomsky's uh, belief structure is such that he's trying to di divorce himself from that. And one thing I always think about is sort of like, like this idea of strong men. He's a very, very critical of any society that has like a strong leader. It's, <laughs> you're being over emotionally, you know, attached to this one individual. They don't actually represent you. You're just being hoodwinked in this yeah, way. And so basically any leader, you know, whether it's Mussolini, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, they're all just, they're all exactly the same. You know, um, despite the fact I would argue that Hitler and Mussolini weren't very strong people at all. <laughs> they, were, they got their strength from a particular class, you know, whereas I would see, you know, a Mao or a Stalin, I wouldn't say, oh, what, you know, what strength they have is what strength we are able to, to do to, to, to put up these genuine articles. You know, King is a strong man, but his strength doesn't come from anything but the people. And that's, you know, if you try to divorce yourself from that, you know, that's, um, you're, you're, you're cutting your chances of any yes. kind of progress, you, you know, know it's, it's so very, it's, oh, can I just, just, yeah. just in conversation, you know, I think it's so true what you said, this idea, we talked about love, but the other thing is the idea of trust, yeah. you know, and I, I can tell you, a guy like Horn, he retreated into the academy because the more difficult work is just like to build up that yeah. trust among mm -hmm. people to come every Saturday. And we among people, we trust one another. Mm -hmm. We exude that. People yeah. see that. And yeah, that that's a yeah, yeah. And, and the people, let's say of the Soviet trusted Stalin. Trust itself is seen as as some sort of um, Weakness, right? Weakness I mean, I, yeah. I was thinking actually That's what about she said. everything about feeling and belief is, yeah. is a weakness. So, yeah. so they set themselves up as the strong man. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I was thinking of this, um, this YouTuber I used to watch, Daniel Dumbrell, I think his name is. Oh, yeah. He's like a Canadian person who lives in China. And he, he went to Tibet and he was interviewing people in Tibet about, you know, what their lives were like now. And, uh, you know, someone would try to wear a Mao pin because they were so proud to wear that. And it's like, no, no, take it off for the camera. You know, Westerners see this, they'll just think you're brainwashed. You know, <laughs> that's really what it is. It's like, you no, know, those people know what their life's journey has been. They know what they had to go through, and now they're very proud. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Emil. and then Samir. Well, I feel like when we were talking before about, I guess, describing Chomsky as like a rationalist or a neo-Kantian or a structuralist, it made me think a lot more or reflect on why it was so important that we read the science of logic for so much of this year. Um, because I feel like it's, uh, in this time, you need to have a reason for a logic which is resilient. And in the science of logic, like Hegel is literally talking about logic as a developing science and how logic itself needs to be updated or it needs to progress just as humanity has developed and progressed. Like when he was talking about like the logic of Aristotle's time, but then the distance with which like that humanity has crossed 
um, and why like with the enlightenment or like with all the progress that's being made, you need to have new thought or thought that is actually like relevant or like resonates. But the thing that it resonates with is like the people, I think, like the ideas that actually live um, in people. And I feel like that also speaks to like with Chomsky or like Horner, all these people who are basically like alienated from the people and like the life world, the actual reality that humanity faces. I feel like it shows that like instead you have to like lean on the authority, which I feel like we also talked a lot about with like the authority of academia versus the actual knowledge that is developing. And I think in that like too, like when Du Bois is saying like there's something that's more important than science or knowledge which is like the man who knows because it's like knowledge doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything if not for the people who know or the people who do something with that knowledge and so I feel like it's also just really I don't know it is very offensive because all of the knowledge or all of the facts that Horn claims to present as an authority none of those things are supposed to make you do anything like all the things that he says are just supposed to paralyze you. Be like, oh, like it's hopeless. Like there's no endeavor to life. Like I should just sit and like be depressed or be angry or basically like pull humanity backwards. Um, yeah. And I feel like the man, like this focus on like not just knowledge, but the man who knows or like this thing of science and humanity also reminded me of like in color and democracy, like in talking about a people's democracy, a democracy that fits the people Du Bois also talks about the need for like a new religion, a religion that like is able to put together scientific planning and thought, but with, I guess, like the, the ideals, I think he says the guiding ideals of religion and like the good faith and trust um, that religion can actually provide, which I think is also like what Gandhi yeah. and yeah, like all of these leaders, I think, understood. Morality. Yeah. Just answer the question, or if you don't mind. First of all, I, now I'm, I'm getting into a feeling that I want to have free school every day <laughs> because it's just <laughs> makes so much. But um, you say that Hegel argued that logic uh, demands that it itself be updated. Uh, where, in fact, did he say that? Because I was not. I think not that it, well, I feel like in the introduction when we were reading yeah. it, he was talking about how Aristotle, like there was the Aristotelian logic and how it was a little bit absurd that since that time, like yeah. whatever, 2000, thousands of years ago, right. we were still using that exact logic. And I think, I'm not sure if this was actually in the text or if this was just my wild mm -hmm. reading of it, mm -hmm. but I think I thought that because there's also this component of spirit that like the spirit is also moving and that logic, it's not that it necessarily follows spirit, but that it's not like a static logic. And I feel like it's also like, I don't know, I think when we, even when we were reading Grace Lee Boggs, like there is this thing that she said she got from Hegel, which is that truth is always changing. And I don't think that it means that, you know, like truth is relative, like truth is changing between you and me, but that like the times change because of the choices that people make and the agency that like humanity has to actually determine its own destiny and through those decisions like the possibility for thought also like develop mm -hmm. um, like creatively like it's not restricted um yeah like i don't i don't know no 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 no, no. the only reason i asked and you know is because of the free schools idea of this lenin du bois synthesis mm -hmm. that lenin was not the end game perhaps just the beginning, and that 
Du Bois is in the dialectic between the two. Du Bois is the more living, the more um, uh, alive, I guess you say, part of the dialectic. That if we are to have an American revolution, that yes, Lenin, but you need that that new synthesis. That's that's right. And I, I would um I think that what Hegel argues is that the truth is always emerging and so on. So but that's what I, I just because that kind of relates to what we're trying to do as well. But let me let Anna come in and then Samir. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think a lot of this stuff is like truth and reality is always changing. Um, well, I guess one, I mean, I also used to, like, as a student, um, I was really, like, I looked to people like Chomsky, I looked to people like Saeed, like all of these, uh, I guess, thinkers. Um, but, I, but I think one of the big things that they represent is just, like, non-struggle. Because as a student, like, you don't have to struggle for anything if you're constantly looking to them for answers. Like, you see, like, a development whether it be in history or in, you know, in the news, and they always have something to say about it. And then you can just like digest it, you know, completely and uncritically because you trust them. That's where you put your authority. Um, but yeah, I just think, yeah, this thing of like non-struggle, but so many like young people who both are of these institutions, but also outside of them who still look to these people as authorities, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost like a muscle that you flex or maybe maybe one that maybe you let atrophy that when you're so used to this type of knowing or this type of getting information, um, I mean, this idea of struggling for, you know, the truth or for ways of uniting people or for like bringing new like categories or language or ways for people to make sense of their reality it just becomes so alien. It becomes like almost something to fear because it's so, I mean, it can appear to be like intimidating. It can appear to be threatening. Um, and I think this is one of the really insidious things is that like these, these ways of knowing, these ways of relating that the ruling class like disseminates, they trickle into like people outside of that class. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, just this thing, like, like what people have been saying about that we need like new ways, um, well, like, like, yeah, like, like new logics, like new sciences. I mean, it's kind of reminded me of what um, I think like Lotus did back in December with like, you know, our whole like sociology thing, but we came across this idea of like anomie from I think Durkheim, but anomie, it's still like, yeah. And I'm not sure how much like those ideas like still hold water, but just this idea that like the the values or the quote like binding threads of a society that are outwardly professed do not actually match like people's realities they don't match the conditions they don't match like the historical moment um and when and the like, people can sense that contradiction they can sense that mismatch um which is what causes like this mass you could you could call it anxiety you could call it all, all types of like social disorder. Um, but yeah, but, but the fact is that for there to be like new ways of relating new logics, like they, like they don't just come on their own, they have to be struggled for. Mm -hmm. And like when that process is so 
um, yeah, it's just when it's just so atrophied, when it's so um, obviously like it, it is something that can be brought back, but it, I'm just thinking about like the young people who have been caught up yeah. in that. Because part of the socialization of university and especially elite university education socialized to res have respect experts because you respect your professors, they're your professors because they've achieved and they are experts. You know what I'm saying? And I agree with you. It it's just like when it, like you said, the use the term atrophy. That's what happens to muscles when they're not used. And that's what happens to the brain and the intellect when it's not used. And it's and I agree with you. So much of university education is about socialization and training you to shut down and not think about it. Do you mind if I just call on, uh, uh, go, go no, ahead. Uh, I'm just gonna read some comments. Okay, and then we'll go to Samir and then the hours. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so Danny has a response to the critique of uh, Chomsky and he says, I agree that critique does not mean to hate. Critique originally meant to ground mm -hmm. um, your thinking. So for example, um, to explain what gives rise to Chomsky's worldview. And this can be done with love. Um, and then he says, optimism and pessimism presuppose a standard or a goal, a goal of what is possible. And then one's view towards the likelihood of that goal. Uh, but that then means that one can lower the horizon, lower their standard and become more optimistic um, and then the raising of that standard of what is possible can be derided, can be derided as quote pessimistic because one is not playing along, not substituting accomplished fact for what is possible. I think of King's emphasis on being a transformed nonconformist, which also goes for quote official optimism. Um, defeat also elucidates what one, that, okay, delete, defeat also elucidates what one um, must need for a victory. The optimism contained in such is that it was not inevitable um, crisis knowledge. Okay, and then I think the main part is, I would not say the main problem with Horn and Chomsky is that they're pessimistic. They certainly are, but they might not agree with that. Rather, they have no real critique. They only react. Chomsky takes imperialism to be an aberration, not the overripeness of the need for socialism or whatever it will be called. They take their immediate impressions to be true. They do not self-reflect on why the world appears to them in such a way. And their pessimism stems from a lowered horizon. The limitation I find with imposing the problem with, uh, the limitation I find with posing the problem of one of optimism versus pessimism is that in practice, it becomes a way of stifling critique as quote, pessimistic, where perhaps critique is the most optimistic thing that the world could be better, could be free. There are many reasons to be hopeful, but one is that we can still think, that we can still critique. And just to, just to give an example of this, Chomsky ultimately is liberal. I think this is what I mean by a quote rationalist, meaning the crisis of society does not have necessity, but seems accidental. It seems like the results of machinations of a legion of doom, merely of merely one done by evil people. And so when things don't change, when Biden is in office, he can't really make sense of why things seem to have run in a circle. Um, 
Okay, and then it says the very revolution, the revolution itself is perhaps the oldest question in philosophy, the relationship of thought and being. The goal of the revolution of the transformation of society, socialism is to become self-conscious, to become quote, for itself, like the thing for itself. Um, and then he says that Tony is spot on about grievance seeking from people like uh, Gerald Horn. Uh, he also says that Karl Marx does get personally attacked. He's often called lazy, a bad father, and he never had that he never had a real job, that he was dictatorial, dirty, evil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which I, I I'm not I don't know that much about Marx. And then he refers to uh, one of the articles that Emil referenced, um, which is I think is called the working class and neo-Malthusianism. Um, and then, okay, and then he also says that he agrees with us that we should not assume that any of the old categories will continue. And then Megna adds that Emil's point about the class character of ideas, of culture, of our mental state of despair is so true. You can only be hysterical and despairing if you are blind to the potential of people, especially the young. Um, and that in response to, um, I think the Emile's article about neo-Malthusianism by Marx or Lenin, um, that this is that this article is very beautiful. It's illuminating to see the cynicism of our times as a neo-neo-Malthusianism favored by the petty bourgeoisie and contrasted to the spirit of the working class who say that we fight, um, the, the spirit of the working class saying that we fight for the sake of our children as our parents fought for us, armed with history. It reads beautifully with the immortal child. Uh, Stephen Palmier says, to trust, you have to care. Um, okay, and then Blaze has a long comment. <laughs> um, I don't know if I can read all this, but related, somewhat unrelated to the question now, but I have been reading The Absorbent Minds by Maria Montessori, Montessori, who in the early to mid 1900s developed what she called a scientific pedagogy theories of child development that increasingly, that interestingly predate Chomsky on the nature of language acquisition. Um, at times has, and he's saying that it is similar to Du Bois and Tagore. Um, and then he's reading a quote, I don't know if I can read all of this quote uh, from Maria Montessori, but it's about the nature of man, the development of man, which people can read in the, the comments. I'm sorry, it's just a really long quote. Um, and then, okay, I think I'll read all that. And then Danny saying, uh, yes, affirming that um, the science is the self-movement of the spirit of the world spirit. Um, so yeah, okay, those are the comments. Sorry, I know, I know that was right. No, 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 go ahead, submit an analysis. Um, the conversation earlier about cynicism reminded me about something that Frontier, or two things Frontier said. Uh, one of them, when asked about love, he said that to be love requires vulnerability or something like that. I might be paraphrasing. And um, yeah, he also said, um, as a young man, he didn't understand blues until he was an older man and had gone through heartbreak. <laughs> And it clarified for me a lot about blues and reminds me about Du Bois saying that blues is the rhythmic narrative of a disappointed people 
that sort of acts as like a antidote to the cynicism. And now we're talking about Noam Chomsky and Gerald Horn and their cynicism. Uh, but I think that a large part of their problem was that they didn't have that dimension of love for the people and they never made themselves vulnerable mm -hmm. to the people. They never, like so said, sat with the dis discomfort of being wrong, I think you put it, or sat with any discomfort or vulnerability toward working people. Um, and for some people being vulnerable, uh, especially in a, a violent American individual society like this is really difficult even for so-called socialists um, or even, even for me, I think I don't, uh, I'm, now that I'm beginning to understand that love requires vulnerability or getting hurt, I think that I, I also do that. I don't, I, don't, I retreat or I am uh, not vulnerable enough, but um, it, it reveals to, to me that Chomsky and Gerald Horn, even though Chomsky is very giving, he'll always answer your emails, he'll come on and he'll talk to you, but he won't be vulnerable with you. And um, you could, I'm, I'm sure that in the moment when people are making these political choices, like we talked about people don't want to come to the conferences because they've got something going on, or maybe they just don't think it's worth their time or their investment, they don't want to be uh, vulnerable. Um, in that split second, it seems like a reasonable decision to preserve oneself. But we can see from the results of Chomsky and Gerald Horn that it hasn't preserved themselves, that they made the wrong choice, and that to be vulnerable and fall in love with the people is the right choice all the time. Um, I also watched the Gerald Horn conversation, and when I finished it, I was so confused because everything he was saying, except for like the basics of like, you know, what is double consciousness, and even that. I think he did a terrible job, but I was so confused following, and I didn't quite know how to understand it until this conversation. Um, and something that a couple of us have been discussing in preparation for the 10th anniversary is also like, what is America and how do you love America? And I think those two questions are very complicated for many of us who haven't had the chance um, to discuss these ideas in free school, because I think that what we've come to is that you can't really come to, you can't really understand America, or you can't really love America unless you understand the history of struggle of the American people. And the thing with with Gerald Horn is that in speaking only about settler, settler colonialism, it essentially says that America's has had no history. Since mm -hmm. I don't know what what was the year that you referenced this? 1619. Yeah, 1619. And therefore you're saying that 1619 is only is only, like what you're saying is that 1619 marks the oppression of an entire nation of people, but that's only like you you define them only through their oppression. But does it like, why are you not talking about actually the centuries also of struggle that the American people have had? And it's a different starting place from the free school because what we see is that 
yes, there's a lot of problems in America, but it also presented so many opportunities and so much um, uh, substance for hope actually moving forward and working together. Um, and I think that's why we, like we talk about the fourth American revolution because we have seen contradictions in our history, but also the forward movement in which people have struggled and made progress as well. Um, and yeah. I think even in that, you know, what, is, what are you telling actually the future of our children, or what are you telling the children if your reference point is 1619? Because their whole thing is that we need to teach settler colonialism in school, we need to teach critical race theory, but where does that leave our children? And that's so different from the approach that Du Bois, and that's why I was so confused. I was like, everything I was hearing was nothing that we've ever read about Du Bois. And it's weird because he's a biographer of Du Bois. He's supposedly the biographer of Du Bois. Um, but yeah, you just talk, if you don't have this history in which people have struggled, what does that leave for the future of our children? Um, and I think that's why the conference is so important in which we keep talking about a sky, because that's the same thing that Du Bois talks about, where he says, and this is specifically because we read it together in Russia America that stood out, because I was like, oh wait, that's what we've been talking about, which is that to, how do we teach children actually to reach for the stars rather than settling for the gutter? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's the approach is so different. And I think it, confused, it also confused me because we talk about this every week and we talk about how, like for so many reasons, the free school doesn't have to continue every week or even there's so many reasons in which the free school could have not continued. Um, and there's always this, these distractions of telling you that there is no hope or I think even knowing Chauncey, he does reference black people, but he references black lives matter. <laughs> yeah. And so that also tells you where that leads in terms of where actually hope lies. Um, but I guess I bring this up because like Du Bois is relevant for our time and and he's relevant for our times because it presents a future for America and a future for our children because he recognized the progressive traditions um, wherever they came from. Yeah. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, do we have any more comments because we have to get ready to leave? No. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just this whole discussion. Um, um, if I could, um, I could just, uh, just as a, a summation, if you don't mind. Um, I think, you know, this conversation indicates that we are very well equipped mm -hmm. to carry out the conference for the 10th anniversary. And I think with, with this consciousness, with this understanding, we now have to just go out and build and build and build and talk as much as possible to other people. But, um, I think I think we got it right. I mean, the more that we go around and talk. So um, with that, I guess uh, we'll be in touch. We'll have the website up <laughs> soon and everything.
so okay. I'll see you guys. <laughs>